Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. Welcome back. Guys, this is the last guest episode of the year, and really the last episode of the year, because the year in review we will put out in the beginning of January, but we will actually be recording it in December. And before I introduce this guest, who you guys may already guess who this really who this is, because we do it every year. I want to read a little bit out of this guest's book. So, it is clear here that Pew's recognition that the people have had gotten wise to their industrial age, gilded age, robber, baron exploitation that had led the country into the Great Depression and urban squalor and mass production servitude to be only remediated by the meager resources of the Christian social gospel do-gooders. And that more clergy were getting back to Bible-based advocacy and ministry to the poor, widow, orphan, and stranger, and had an effective moral bully pulpit, literally and figuratively, required his fellow aristocrats throwing their 30 pieces of silver attempting Judas's and the clergy in a manner they knew could buy their support and help in sacredizing their big business, common man-exploiting agenda with a veneer of Bible imagery. The communism and socialism, the big business NAM people thought the clergy promoted were radical ideas like worker rights and union collective bargaining, worker safety, education for all, consumer protections, and the like, which to them were dangerous ideological concepts. Their veneer of Bible imagery masquerading as a theology 
had the gall to suggest that the Bible endorsed unregulated free markets when, as we have seen, the Bible is chock full of admonitions from God himself that the rich and merchants will consistently exploit the poor and vulnerable in the marketplace with dishonest weights and measures and drain the poor man's vitality by dragging him into court in legal expenses or throwing him into debtor's prison for which those in power and the people who tolerate it and have a say will be held accountable by him. Their system glorifies the rich man of whom Jesus himself says it's hard him for him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The libertarian focuses, obsesses, and fetishizes on property, wealth, assets, and possessions, tearing down barns to build new ones, while Jesus says they are liabilities that can keep us out of the kingdom like the rich young ruler. The people who bankroll the libertarian industry are primarily concerned with minimizing taxes, regulations to protect consumers, workers, and the environment that will impact their profit line and government referees in the marketplace between the wealthy, their marketers, Madison Avenue advertisers, public relations groups, and lawyers, and the poor individual consumer or worker that has had has just enough dough for the end of the month. However, they thinly disguise their motives to the gullible public by emphasizing personal freedom and liberty and characterized by a noble individual fighting the government system. In fact, a freedom to be swindled, fooled, cajoled, threatened, and sued into compliance if they wish to feed the family that month. That's a passage from a book that is coming out of a volume one of a book series coming out called Two Masters and Two Gospels by our good friend, Dr. Future, who is here on the show. Welcome, Welcome. to the show, Dr. Future. Well, thank you so much for the privilege of being here. I really appreciate you caring. The The passage that you read um, was sound like a little bit more of a rant on my behalf. Uh, when you take the whole lengthy book in total, you'll find out why I sort of go off like that, because uh, it's actually, I think you would agree with me, Adam, it's pretty chocked full of hard data and references and quotes that leads me to some of those conclusions like you shared. Is it not? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I need to tell everybody, first of all, thank you. I know you normally have me on at the end of the year, which is a privileged position, but um, I'm still about, I'm in the last throes that the, the information in the books sealed. I mean, that's, it's it. But uh, going through this first stage of this kind of publication like this, this is the first time I've done this. And I'm in the middle of the last lengthy stage of trying to get the index built for all the terms for researchers to look up. And it's a lengthy process. And then I got some little legal things I have to do and websites and everything. So I'm probably looking about 30 to 60 days out from releasing this. And I'm burning the midnight oil. I'm working seven days a week, another wee hours. And my hope is to have this within like 30 days. So, but the material is cemented, and um, Adam, you're one of the only people who've actually looked inside. I think there's only two other people that have looked to any significant amount of it, and I hope it's something that you found was worth your time. It is. I've read about probably 70% of it. Of the whole book, huh? Of this, at this point, yeah. 420-something pages. Yeah, there's a there's a lot there is a lot to it. There is a ton of information. Uh, A large cast of characters too, is it not? I mean, we're going to talk about some of that. A large group of people, very much so. Yeah, and 
But I've read, like I said, I've read about a, I've read about seventy percent of the book. Um, each chapter is chock full of all kinds of info. Yeah, all kinds. Even I somebody mean, it, like it ex- you who exhaustive, knows exhaustive, exhaustive research. Even somebody like you who knows everything about everything. In my view, oh, was there new stuff? That. Was there new oh, stuff well, for you? A ton you didn't know? of new stuff. Every just a lot of it was new. Okay, to me, it was to me when I got into the research. It was like going into Oz. I mean, you kind of know about some of this because I've talked um, uh, to you about it before, but there was so much that I just didn't even conceive of uh, some of the players and who they are. And yeah, um, I read. A good deal of the fourth chapter in the book, and that in and of itself, you know, we could probably do on this show three or four podcasts on. Yeah. Of just how much, that's how much information there literally is. Yeah. In just one chapter of this book. And they're long chapters. I try to do a, a good number of revelations per page. That was sort of at least what I thought was relevant to understanding what's going on. But but a lot of these cast of characters and narrative are things that go back, a lot of it, several generations ago, intermixed with what's going on today. And I was surprised how little of these people that influence the world we live in that I didn't know anything about until I, you know, I got into the research. Yeah. yeah there's, there's a ton. So let's talk about, Mike, Dr. Future. Where'd you get the idea to write this book? Okay. Two masters and two gospels. Uh, one of the things we did talk a little bit about this on the show, the episode that we had you on at the end of the year last year, right? Which I just started. You, on you this. had just started, right? And well, you can kind of tell how like the evolution of this book, where right. it kind of came from, and right how you've kind of the the Holy War Chronicles. I guess you kind of put on hold a little bit to work on this, and yeah, how that all started. Yeah, and and somebody in this room, I won't mention who it is, had a lot to do uh, I with wonder. me changing my priorities. And, and <laughs> if I could just throw out one other disclaimer uh, to the uh, listenership, um, since this is sort of a little bit of a premature talk about this, this is like a, a preview thing um, before the official rollout. My brain's pretty fried right now, and I have not done good prep for interviews as far as content i did a crash course all day today and took a break from the index work and some other stuff on publication to try to get prepared somewhat for this interview because i don't want to waste your listeners time it's too valuable but uh i'm pretty brain fried right now on stuff so if i have a hard time finding some information or remembering some things i'll be doing a better job when this book's out and i'm better prepared so just pre- oh and the other thing i was going to say too since i'm not prepared a lot of the stuff i write about are people who are still alive and i don't say very nice things about those people Uh-oh. some of them are very litigious kinds of people so you, those kind of people you got to be very very careful to be precise on what you say well if you want we could skip that well no those. no we don't but what i'm going to say of is dead people that we could just yeah there's lots of dead people but <laughs> What I'm going to say is is that the research in my book, uh, I've tried to cross-reference a number of reputable sources. Usually it's out of the mouths of the culprits. Um, but in doing sort of a semi-unprepared interview like this, I may not be able to exactly quote them. We may read some things out of the book. So what I'm telling the listeners is I defer to the book and its research. Yeah. And in fact, there's several hundred unique references in the book. 
and they're all in the end notes in the back. Um, in the electronic ebooks, they're all still hot linked. I would say 95% of them have a URL hot link where they can go because most of the people who read a lot of this stuff, I don't think they're going to believe it when they read it. And I put that in there so they know for sure this is what I use a lot of lengthy quotations because I, I don't trust people thinking that when I summarize it, I'm telling them the truth. So they can go back and look all this stuff up. It's all hot-linked. Uh, the URLs will still even be in the paperback. They just have to type it in a browser. But it'll be there, and I encourage people to double-check me and do their due diligence. But back to your question. Um, you are right. I had no intention to write about any of this. And, and by the way, the the book series, it's it's evolved into a three-volume book series. This is the first one that's being released. The other ones are about, the second one now is probably about 85% written. The third one is probably about 60% written. So I'll have to do a little crash course on them and then get those prepped too, and they'll come right on the heels of this. But it's called... uh, uh, this is like the rise and fall of the Roman. This is like the uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Only a little so longer. Basically, uh, it's nothing like the Holy War Chronicles. Believe me, this is a breezy uh, read. What's that up to now? How many volumes? Well, uh, Holy War Chronicles. Right now, I would say I got enough material now for about twelve volumes, and I've still <laughs> got about four or five more to go. So, wow. So this is fifteen books in total. It's well, like, it's I like fig- Dune. I figured the other day if I go just all to the wall for you know seven days a week, 24-7, maybe give about three months to sort of get around and talk to people about these in between. I've got easily six years' worth of time to never write another thing other than just go through the manuscripts I've released yeah. or, or polishing and right. to get them out. So I'm now that this Pandora's box is open with largely your insistence, um, I'm going to have to me. go on and get this stuff out before it's ancient history. But, you know, my plan was, was to do the Holy War Chronicles. This is called um, Two Masters and Two Gospels. The first volume, and I don't want to spook off people who aren't religious people because I think you'll agree with me. There's a lot of stuff for everybody in this, not just religious people. Um, it's just the religious people will get more upset at me about the content. But the uh, first volume is called the teaching of Jesus versus the leaven of the Pharisees in talk radio and cable news. And the reason why I even wrote on this topic um, was because while I was trying to focus on on getting the last volumes of the Holy War Chronicles done uh, in resisting the desire to distract from it, um, I found the current events that were going on politically and other stuff were so disturbing and getting darker and darker and as a person of faith myself, I felt not only were the perpetrators dark, but the religious people who were supporting them was even darker to me. Yeah. And what I thought I saw going on. And, and if I could use two analogies of where I think we are today, and it's ironic that we're doing this on the very night that I guess they're voting for impeachment, right at the moment we're recording this. Oh yeah. yeah, well, it's already voted. I mean, they did already, they did they yeah, vote it? The first it's article. Of, it's officially. Was it like an yeah. hour ago or something like that? It was a little it, over an hour ago. Yeah. Okay. It, it, the everything coming over the news feed right. This is not going to make sense in two weeks when this is out. But right, right. Everything coming over the news feed right now right. is that. It, well, we it's could all official be, that he's been impeached. Yeah. Well, we could all be dead by the time this is uploaded. So that's very possible. 
if it's straight, just straight ar- to the red button. Yeah, an some, Arctic some wag, wag the dog. Right. Could be an Arctic region covered with ice and snow. Or if Tom Horn is right, that Apophis asteroid could hit, and that could be it for us. That but, might be the end of all the problems. Right, and a blood moon uh, rapture or whatever. But anyway, um, there's, there's two scenarios historically that reminds me of the times we're in. Uh, one of them is the Dreyfus Affair. And if I could very briefly summarize the Dreyfus Affair, that was the big international story um, 120 years ago, like right at the start of the 20th century in France when this uh, loyal Jewish officer in the French army was implicated with passing on information to German intelligence. And the military all got behind and said he's guilty, you got to run him up. The church got behind it, too. And the people started wondering, like, well, this is a setup. This really didn't happen. This this was not really what was going on. But both the military and the church said, we can't back down now because it would hurt the reputation of the state and the church and all of the establishment um, to back down. And so... One thing that that is a byproduct of it is he was sent to Devil's Island, which nobody really ever knew about and started learning about off Guyana, about the horrors of Devil's Island because this uh, officer was sent there. They also, when they, something that sort of became famous in like movies and things afterwards, it was a case where they brought him out for an official military, uh, I guess, removal where they would take his saber and break it over their sword and cut yeah. off his epaulets and his buttons, the stuff you've seen later in movies. Well, that was got famous from what they did to humiliate him and show you were a traitor. And he went there for years, and since the the church would not come to his defense, the secularist came to his defense. And the secularist and the artist philosophers began uh, Emil Zola was a very famous guy movies been made about this guy he was famous in the press for pleading the case of the innocence of Dreyfus and the people who believed like him were called the Dreyfusards on the other hand you had the pro-military pro-church pro-state people that were the anti-Dreyfusards and they wanted to run him up and didn't want to hear anything about you know exculpatory evidence or anything like that it involved the whole world and one of the few people that came to the Jewish man's defense was the Muslim community in the Middle East. They said he was an innocent man and he wasn't getting a fair shake. And Muslims came to his aid, but they they ran him out. And but but Emil Zola and some others wouldn't drop it, even though the guy was sent off to Devil's Island. Years later, they're still producing evidence to show how he was set up. And eventually, they silenced him by doing, I think, a defamation case. Uh, because he fingered the people who were guilty of doing this, and uh, Miozola lost everything. They wouldn't even let him testify on his behalf. Courts wouldn't let him produce evidence on it. And so he, he was wiped out and other people. But as the years went on, there was somehow a critical mass of other secular moralists who who said, look, this is not right. And there was a critical point in which they they basically fingered the guys who had set him up in the military, and one of the main guys took his life rather than go to trial. And the dominoes started falling, and they had to bring him back. And I think they had another trial, and these same military people wanted to still convict him, but somehow he was pardoned, if I remember right. 
and he actually went back in the military and served in World War One. He may have even been wounded, if I remember right, but he was willing to do that. But the side effects of it, because they were willing to see an injustice uh, to save the reputation of the church and the state, was that the people lost all respect for the institutions, and the church, from the, the people that I've read, ended up basically going hardcore fascist to the point that those people and the ones that were influenced under them became the leadership in Vichy, France, right. when the Germans came in. Right. And the point I'm making for that long story is is that there was a split down the middle, and it became a split. It wasn't like, well, how much tax should we charge people or whatever. It was a fundamental thing of what you believe on what is moral or what is not moral. And I think we have in our country a a critical mass that's not going to go well for somebody long term in what's going on. The the other thing that this whole thing as a person of faith that I have felt like experienced is, is a and this has gone on for years, even from future quake days, it reminds me of a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne that I wrote about in one of my Holy War Chronicles books on on the history of America and its holy wars called Young Goodman Brown. Have I ever talked about it on here? Uh, well, you've talked about it with me, but I don't okay, think I don't think I'll show it on here. Well, I'll try. Well, just to... a side note about the Dreyfus affair. Yeah, uh, Zionism was almost an out, a complete outgrowth of that because um, Herzl, the founder of Zionism, that's true, was one of the journalists that right. covered the covered right. it, and yeah. he realized that that basically convinced him that he was never going to find justice for Jews in Europe or with the Church. Yeah, and think of all the turmoil we've had in the world in the Middle East. That's just yet another byproduct of short-sightedness by those people. But Young Goodman Brown, I'll try to be quick. I think it's only a 14-page story. People can find it online, probably archive.org. It was written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, who's mostly remembered for the Scarlet Letter. Uh, He wrote at the time of the Puritans, or maybe a little after that, I guess 1700s. But um, he was not a big fan of them. And... It's a it's a fictional story, and it's one of the most chilling things I have ever read of any kind of horror short story. And it's about a Puritan village, and if a lot of you know from that era, colonial era, they saw anything outside the settlement, like out in the woods, was automatically evil. That was where the devil yeah, and witches yeah. hung out. In fact, the movie The Witch out a few years ago yeah, played yeah. on that, that that's where the evil spirits were. Well, they all sort of stayed cloistered in the area. But anyway, he was in this idyllic, sort of like the religious right dream of this very Christian culture with these wonderful Sunday school teachers and church leaders and officials he respected. and all. It was just perfect Christian culture where he lived. Well, I don't remember all the details because I've been, I, I wrote it, I don't know, six, seven years ago. But something stirred him to wake up at night. And something compelled him to start walking out on the edge of town and out toward the woods, which he'd normally ever do. And it's very chilling when you read this story because you, you sense this guy's walking into danger. Well, as he's walking into these, you know, tree line uh, paths out into the woods, he starts seeing other people from the community walking along. He sees, like, old ladies in the church that were just, you know, wonderful ladies in the church. And they're talking with their pastor and with these other Christian leaders about doing services for the devil. 
and doing these demonic sacrifices and things like orgies and other things like that he's alluding to. And he is just dumbstruck at why he's hearing these people he thought he knew that had this secret life of just real salaciousness. And he goes deeper and deeper in the forest. He sees darker and hears darker things. And you start thinking, he's never going to get out of this. I mean, he's in too far. And in time, he finds out that his betrothed fiance, I believe it's who it was, was also somehow drug into this. And they learn out in a big field, they're doing a big satanic, sort of a, like a, a wicker man kind of thing. And they're going to have this big, big event, and then sacrifice them both. And he sees all of the city leaders out there doing this, acting completely different than they do during the day. And somehow there's some distraction that happens where he's able to grab her hand and run for their life and get out of there while chaos breaks out at the thing. And somehow he makes it back. And the story continues in the daytime, in the morning, and he's thinking, did that really happen or not happen? But but what it says there, it says it was real enough to him that he never looked the same way at all of those religious leaders and others that he respected. That doesn't mean he, he was distrusted Jesus or his Christian faith, but the people themselves that were the pride of the community, right. he never looked the same way. Yeah, it was a satire, essentially, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was fictional. Yeah. But it was the scariest thing, I think. I mean, it was skillfully written. I mean, it right. was the kind of thing that I think Stephen King's maybe commented on it. Oh, but sure. It that, was so that whole chilling. New England tradition. Yeah. Right. But the thing that really chilled me about it is that I knew how he felt and having seen another side of people he used to respect and he saw what they were really like and how you don't have respect for him anymore. And again, it wasn't an anti-God story, it wasn't an anti-Jesus. It was an anti-hypocrisy thing. Yeah. And that is a thing that was only reinforced, not only with what we're going on, but as I did the research for this book, and I thought I knew all of the bad stuff that a lot of these guys do until you take the time to start documenting and documenting and chasing leads. And I've only scratched the surface in the 400-something pages of this book. Uh, the, the other volumes have even worse stuff in them. Yeah. But when I look at this, I sort of felt like Jesus, when he says he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem, it was like when he was ready to go and he'd do the cross, it's like, I'm tired of messing around with these people. You know, let's get this on. And I sort of feel like I'm tired of messing around with these people right now. I mean, I'm a nobody. But what what this book is, for the, whoever the handful of people who read it, is I am I am basically writing down the sins, the deception, the hypocrisy, stuff that nobody remembers or knows about as well as stuff's going on yesterday, and I'm trying to build a case. And I mean it for a constructive purpose. I mean it for good spiritual purposes. But it's a pretty sordid story. I think you'd agree with me from what you've read so far. Yeah, it is a pretty sordid story. Of which you probably would have thought you you knew enough already to have a lot of problems about people when you started digging into it. And, and this essentially too started as a as a blog post, really. Started as a blog post. Thanks for getting me back on my long question, and uh, that didn't fully scratch the itch with me. In fact, I got yeah. a lot of heat for those blog posts, sort of just beginning to document this. And then I thought, you know, and some of this was your encouragement. I thought 
there's more I need to say about this than just a few blog posts. This may be one day down the road might even become a book. So I'm just going to start collecting some stories, collecting some things, hang on to them for the future after Holy War Chronicles. And I wanted to leave it at that and take on one mountain at a time. And then Mr. Sane's like, well, you better hurry up and get this out. It's sort of relevant. <laughs> it's sort of relevant what's going on. It's very relevant. It's very, very relevant true. to everything that is going on right now. Yeah, and probably— and especially, I think, after I watched that documentary about the family yeah, yeah. that yeah. Netflix put out. Right. That's when I was pretty much like, yeah, Mike, you got to get this book out. It's in the zeitgeist right now. Yeah. Well, October is when I started this to sort of put it together. And in 11 months, I had— I see, 1,200 pages written, something like that, maybe more than that. Um, so, and, and there's still more to add, but but I think it's going to be a three-volume deal, and we'll see where it goes from there and probably get back to Holy War Chronicles. But, but this one just tries to set the table on where the fundamental spiritual problems are. It goes back in history in the 20th century, people that none of us— Almost none of us knew that made the religious right what they are today. It didn't start with Jerry Falwell, you know, or guys like that. It started way before it, Mm -hmm. and the table was set long before these guys or Donald Trump or anybody else showed up. There, there is a a stink that started, and and a poison pill that started in the hearts of people. Do we want to get? Do you want to get into the Falwell stuff, or do you want to wait? We we can wait. Yeah. Or talk about this some more historical or yeah, we, we might want to really set the ground with the the history yeah first. i think maybe let's do that first okay. now the follow yeah. stuff is interesting because of the last guest that we had on because it, it's almost very similar to what some of the stuff we talked to her about yeah but we'll but I we'll think, get to I that i think there's going to be more happening in history about that guy yeah. because see he is a a real real protege of donald trump Basically the same modus operandi, very litigious. I mean, he's he's threatening now to sue his own board members at Liberty. And, and it, it's basically an absolute racket. He's pulling down about a million a year running that operation. And they have figured out, you know, they're hyper anti-government, but they're bilking the government and the taxpayers for a fortune and money. For well, for what's a borderline diploma mill, at least some of their online stuff. In well, well, since we're on the subject, let me, let, let's just touch on this. You know, the last episode we had uh, a Naomi on, she was talking about this cult that she grew up in um, called King's Chapel up in Connecticut. And as I was reading her material and as I was listening to her podcast that she does where she interviews all these people that were involved in this cult, I'm also reading your section about Falwell Jr. Uh-huh. And it's just very similar in the fact that all these things that he's doing, he's going out to these raves and partying. And yeah, there's, Miami. There's weird pool boy stuff going on. And, and gay-friendly and, hostels yeah, that he's buying to let them run. Right. This is the supposedly mm-hmm. the people that are not – that you would not say that Liberty University is very gay or LGBTQ-friendly. Uh, but he did say that when when he was so impressed that Trump had such a big airplane, you know, as a spiritual leader, he found his big airplane and all of the stuff people waiting on him was the thing that impressed him about Donald Trump. And and somehow Donald Trump had figured out that Elton John was his favorite uh, um, act, music act, uh-huh. and had that played on the on the thing. Yeah, I talk about his his. Uh, 
shirtless pictures bareback on horse with some of these young men going around and stuff like that yeah and i want to make it clear we're not like disparaging gay or lesbian people absolutely not. but what we're saying is here's in a fact, guy there's some of the ones that uncovered some of this yeah he, right some of their websites yeah, uncovered right it. right here's here's a guy that is runs a university that is vociferously against that entire lifestyle mm-hmm. that entire hyper section of the population and pushing a political but window. they're doing but it seems like he's doing all this weird kind of like it's 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 homoerotic to say the least at, at the least <laughs> when he puts these these uh cartoon type rainbows in the sky and the guys are winking at him and talking about it but you know they're very much anti uh alcohol yeah, and then and then you see the pictures of him at these raves, him and his kids with alcohol and everything else dancing around in what have reputations as sort of decadent places, and and like his political protege, deny, 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 just like Stormy Daniels, it never happened, it never happened, until the pictures come out, and then more pictures come out, and show more of it, and then he attacks the people that have it rather than deny that this stuff exists and he's taken the liberty money and spending millions of dollars to give these young men sort of hush money by buying them all these these uh big places to operate out of the stuff that all these christians you know spend in their widow's mites so they can send their christian schools are giving all that money and right. all and all that stuff's going out there but the people who pointed out even on this board he said that he's getting the meanest lawyer in new york city to go after him so it's a good Christian example of a of a leader like that. Yeah. Well, and then there's that element of also with this cult that we just talked about in the last episode where they were pretty much doing the same kind of thing. It was almost like, you know, do as I say, not as I do kind right. of attitude. Right. And they had to stay in like the, the best hotels and they, they pretty much bilked it out of their parishioners and right. uh, put them under a lot of strain, essentially use them as slave labor. Right. And there's almost stuff Which like that going on. Which they do. If you read on. that in the, right. it in was, the it was, Liberty it was so University similar. Online, right. they have slave labor there. It, they have everything but the nets outside the building, like the Chinese apple factories. You know, everything short of that. Yeah. And 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 they've got to get somebody signed up. Something like every forty five seconds change, or something. Do they have to chain their children to trees outside? Yeah, something similar to that. Yeah. But um, the whole city is basically just run under the shadow, like Mordor. Yeah. with Mountain Doom and Lynchburg. Mm-hmm. Um, they pretty much run all the major business stuff there in town. But the Christian people, I actually, I was offered a scholarship there when I got out of high school. I was offered at least first year because they wanted all valedictorians to go there. And thank goodness I didn't go. Oh, and Mike, I have, we might have lost you, Mike. Oh, man. I would have been a Stepford wife if you'd done that. Well, we, do know, you do, we do know someone that, that went there. Oh, yeah. yeah. And... And somehow he got out alive too, and he knows where the where the skeletons are in a closet and the bodies are buried too. And now all this stuff is starting to finally come out in the public. But most Christian people don't read investigative journalism sources. If it's not on World Net Daily or Fox News, it's like it didn't happen. And now with this whole fake news thing that goes out, any kind of information that goes counter to their worldview is just file thirteen into fake news. And this is the same kind of stuff that the, uh, like like the Manson girls, when they had the Manson trial. Right. That's basically how they're thinking. They're living in a different universe, and nothing that's going on around them is being processed at all. Well, I mean, I was making a parallel to these Japanese soldiers that were 
this guy that was in the Philippines that didn't surrender to like 1967. Right, right. And it, at first it was him and three guys out in the Philippines and they would drop they like the Americans pretty much knew where they were and they would drop these papers newspapers in in like the 50s yeah that said or you know that that would say like World the war has been over the war like- is over you know stop fighting you need to come out of the jungle and they would look at this and they would say this is just fake ally propaganda there's no way this All is right. just, this is fake right. we can't so it's it's that same mentality right. you've just been brainwashed and brainwashed right. like i think you know the japanese military is very famous for brainwashing their troops sure when that when that uh it's just that same mentality yeah. it just when i heard that story about those those soldiers in the out of the jungle right. right it's like you know it's like this is it's a direct parallel to like you know that's just fake right. news you know i don't i i choose not to believe it essentially right. you know it can't be an accident that I think a similar Japanese soldier that didn't know the war was over tormented uh, Gilligan and his group on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and he wouldn't give up either, if you remember right. And they put, like, the buck teeth and the Coke bottle glasses, like the posters from the propaganda from it. But it, he he and the headhunters were probably the most dangerous really cul- people. Really culturally was. sensitive. Right, right, yes. They were very – basically as culturally sensitive as old-time wrestling. <laughs> on on different ethnic groups and cultures, like the Iron Sheik, you know, yeah, and a Russian yeah, invader, yeah. So okay, let's get into the weeds on the historical stuff okay. here, because I mean this 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 is I think some of the most important stuff. And what we're talking about, hey, let me just reiterate to people, I don't just sit around and chew the fat in this book. Like mm, I know this kind of stuff goes on; it's really bad. I yeah. just quote everybody. Yeah, I right. quote them verbatim right. in the book, and they're very long quotes. And, and smoking gun evidence on every page. The, because I don't yeah. believe anybody will believe me. I, I put it out there and know from the – quote them exactly. And these individuals are endemic of a lot of other individuals. And it oh. seems seems to hint at this kind of not only do as I, uh, do as I say and not as I do, yeah. but almost this uh, layered or esoteric sense – sense of what they think religion is and that there is a religion for them being the elite and then a religion that they push to the masses right right and that's kind oh, of I think a lot of this overarching theme the the, the the grassroots folks are just a money money pool to draw from yeah. that's how much they really think about those people one other thing i'll mention before we move on and it is sensitive information some of your listeners may already know this but one of the things that Trump Jr. has, or excuse me, that uh, Falwell, Falwell Jr. Jr. has in common with his protege Trump, who he absolutely adores, is both of them use Michael Cohen as their as their uh, wow. fixer to get rid of sexually incriminating material, because uh, of all people. Well, nobody's that, using Michael Cohen now. Yeah, I was about right. to say. <laughs> but that, but that, uh, uh, that great uh, investigative journalist Tom Arnold. Uh, who no one would believe if he just told this, actually had a wire on him when he talked to Michael Cohen and actually heard Michael Cohen talk about the the really terrible sexual pictures of Falwell Jr. and his wife that Falwell Jr. had asked him to go get and destroy from down in Miami. Uh, And when I started reading that, I thought this may be connected to the pool boy at the Fontainebleau that he provided these millions of dollars Hit out of his pocket and out of liberties to set up this gay-friendly hostel that they had. Absolutely, it says no religion allowed in this thing. And so he 
put up the money for it. And uh, sure enough, as I followed that research further, I found out that it was a guy connected to the pool boy that had these pictures of something horrible, like some kind of group things going on. It was the impression given between uh, Coleman just said it was really, really horrible. And he kept one of the pictures. But it was his job to go get it from a guy connected to the pool boy down there and because the guy was trying to protect himself because he was getting squeezed out of the deal for the gay-friendly hostel, and he had these pictures as insurance, and he sent Michael Cohen down to threaten him. Blackmail. Right. Yeah. And, and in turn, he agreed, he agreed to drop his support for uh, Ted Cruz because they were getting ready to announce or endorse for Ted Cruz, and he would endorse Donald Trump if he would take care of these incriminating yeah. sexual pictures. And all of the like staff members, board members, were interviewed and talked about how obsessed with sex he is, that he's always talking about his sexual exploits and about what he does with his wife in detail, how sexy she is and everything else, uh, to other board members at this Christian school. And... Of course, his response is to threaten to sue anybody he finds out, you know, who's doing that. But anyway, when they met with Michael Cohen, um, one of the other main IT guys at Liberty was the guy who was hired by um, was hired by Michael Cohen to throw the polls on the Drudge Report and some other online polls, like early in the campaigning when they were in the primaries, to to basically artificially change them to look like Trump won. And this it really guy, felt like a ball, a snowball rolling. Like that's really how it felt right. with the polls. Well, like, it's people start thinking, well, he's legitimate. You know? He could he's, win. Yeah, he's not a crazy guy. He's legitimate. Well, all that was bogus, and it was a, it, it was, it was basically a hack that they did. And this guy from Liberty, their ID department, was hired and paid good money, and one of the payments for like thirteen thousand dollars was given to him up in New York, and and Falwell Jr.'s son, I think it was Trey was the one that went up with him and took a picture and put it online of the $13,000 spread out on the bed that they got from these guys. I mean, it looked like some <laughs> kind of drug deal in a movie or yeah, something yeah. they would do, you know? Yeah. Um, and so th- this is what, you know, is being reported. Politico has probably done the best work on re- – and Reuters. Politico and Reuters have been the two agencies, I quote – that have doing all this and it's not over uh, there's more stuff that's going to be coming out but it's going to get ugly before it's all over so if you see me disappear he's probably most likely culprit yeah. for me to be gone if we get the cease and desist for this episode right <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right historical people that are dead um <laughs> this is what i call and we talked about this a lot in our private conversations, Mike. American fascists. Yeah. Long history. And yeah, we're talking about some really seriously like big business people, essentially capitalist industrialists. Right. You know, the mid early to mid twentieth century. Right. And, and and the fact that they're I mean, they tried to overthrow our government thirty three. Yeah. And that Congress yeah, the, the Congress Wall confirmed plot. It, yeah. The, yeah, they called a business plot. Yep. Smedley Butler. With Granddaddy Bush. Hero. Yeah, he was one of them, the head of DuPont, uh, E.F. Hutton, uh, several other cast of characters. But the... Uh, the rabid... Right. What? Anti-communist. Right. And all that stuff's alluded to in the book. But the thing that really frosts me is that when they got 
the clergy and bought them to do the same thing. Because and that's it, been a big part of your research. Well, and I yeah. quote them in here. They bought the clergy because they said at the time nobody distrusted the clergy, and they believed they could believe every word they said. And that's why they bought the clergy. And but it wasn't always like that. And in many ways, as you point out in the book, the clergy, even like more probably you could say evangelical people, were it, saw it just I think as you do now that you know that there is a social gospel right and that these guys were not living up to that gospel right you see you know, i mean if you go back even to the mid 1800s the big split in the religious people was over slavery mm-hmm. and the people yeah. where i was raised southern baptist and stuff the reason that there are southern baptists is because they put their foot down that slaveholders should all be missionaries because they're just such wonderful war you know uh, role models for us, and the other Baptists and other ones split off of that. I think the Methodists, same thing happened, and others. And so that was the big issue going up to the end of the uh, 19th century. But the Industrial Revolution happened. All the people came off the farms, got drug into cities, and were living in absolute destitution. And it really, it's, it's like my friend Micah says: most of American history is a libertarian history. It was libertarian in the same way that the probably the most perfect example of a libertarian utopia is Dickens, London. <laughs> if you picture Dickens, London. Gangs of New York, if you've ever seen yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know Dickens, London, where you've, you've got basically Ebenezer Scrooge is fully enjoying his liberty and people like him. And then you got the Bob Cratchits and everybody else that are getting to enjoy the freedom of poverty and the freedom of exploitation, and enjoying it to its fullest. And that's what their vision was, and that's what America became during the Gilded Age. I mean, that was a time where places like Newport, Rhode Island, where all of the idle rich lived. That that's had where asters, the, br- the breakers is. The breakers, uh, they lived on. They literally had parties. A, that was a Vanderbilt home. Because they had nothing else to do. And they would have parties where they had um, sand pits, where we'd have sandboxes, but they'd have rubies and emeralds in there to kick around meanwhile the majority of our nation was illiterate they had no health care they were working 14 hour days seven days a week and so finally a social gospel came along that said how can people believe our gospel if 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 they're they're dying in absolute destitution and we turn our backs on them and so this movement came and and there was a pushback by the fundamentalist they got mad because they thought, well, you're you're not focusing just on preaching. You're actually helping people, not realizing that every time Jesus did something, he did all three things at once. He preached about the kingdom. He preached the doctrine. He was doing spiritual warfare. He was casting out devils. He was doing all that kind of stuff. And he also, when people were hungry, he didn't send them away. He actually told the apostles, he says, you feed them. And that just got sort of shelved under the rug. So the fundamentalist, the fundamentalist around the beginning of the 20th century, not only began to distrust education or anybody who had actually, you know, tried to improve their knowledge after the the monkey trial, you know, in Dayton, Tennessee. They the fundamentalists turned away from all, they distrusted universities, any kind of higher education, but they also distrusted the social gospel. 
but they hadn't been fully engaged in the fight, and big business actually were the ones in the, in the mid-1930s, after the Great Depression happened, after it, uh, uh, basically their name was mud. The nation realized that the hubris and the greed uh, of big business, you know, through the stock market and everything else, had wiped out the nation worldwide too. Yeah. And nobody trusted businessmen and the National Association of Manufacturers who were spending all this money trying to rehabilitate their image to say, you could trust big businessmen as they're looking out for you, and nobody was buying it. Yeah. And we were, we were on the brink of the social revolution. I mean, it was... Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's why communism and things started to be... It was so bad, that was starting to look like, well, maybe that, you know... They didn't know everything about Bolshevism and what yeah. was going to happen with Stalin. And but, r- rural America, what conservative America, you know, came from was... Right. Had a lot of socialist sympathies. It was a totally they different They had co-ops. Time. Right. They had co-op collectives, which, by the way, all of these people fighting this love it when they do it in Israel on the kibbutzes. Oh, yes. For the Zionists. Oh, yes, of course. You know, they have hardcore uh, Soviet kind of collectives, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. But, yeah. Collective farms are all right if it's in Israel. Right. Yeah. If you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you blow shofar, that sanctifies right. it. But anyway... <laughs> The National Association of Manufacturers was, was approached by a guy who's like a centerpiece of this book, James Fifield Jr. Okay, let me make a point real quick yeah, before, we go, before we go on on that. You've yeah. got, we've got two things going on here. We have the big business using, using faith as a counter against communism. And, and that actually have, that actually came like right after World War Two. Right, that was Cold right, War right. stuff. Right, but we've also got this promotion of libertarianism by right. the same group. Now, right, libertarianism to me has always kind of been a positive thing because I've considered myself that for for, sure. a, for a very long time. Sure, but 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 yeah, James Fifield and. Yeah. Well, let me say something about libertarianism because I spend a lot of this book and the next one talking about it. Um, The way I tell people is I walked through the Garden of Libertarianism during my future quake time, and I looked down and I saw some beautiful flowers there. I saw the flower of of Mm -hmm. self-determination, non-coercion, free association, and they were beautiful flowers, and I picked those up. And they can actually be a remedy against theocracy. Yes, sir. But what happened is I dug down a little farther through the weeds, not listening to the Christian libertarians. And, you know, some of these outlets that I have been on, I've had on Future Quake, you know, uh, that are really basically no more than, than mask or fronts for Christian libertarianism. When I looked down further, I found a ton of weeds. Yeah. Well, and there's a difference between social and civil libertarianism. And even economic libertarianism for a lot of small business and the concentrated power of big business. Yeah. It's well, not hard to see that those are those are different. Well, yeah. and that's what I was trying to spit out is that I picked up those flowers, and they're genuine flowers, and I held on to them. And when I saw the weeds, I just kept on moving. So I haven't dropped the flowers. I yeah. put them in a vase and gave them water. But there's the rest of it's a bunch of Darwinistic, survival of the fittest, eugenic weeds. And they become borderline Ayn Rand on the way to Luciferianism. 
and I have had to come to terms with that. And as a as a believer, I realize it all comes down to what Cain said to God right in the beginning of the Bible. He said, "Am I my brother's keeper?" And the rest of the Bible, you could almost say, is a narrative about that question. And the libertarian's answer is very clear. It's, heck no, you aren't. And Screw in fact, uh, Charles Darwin would agree. And Charles Darwin may not have agreed as much as they Thomas Huxley. They must endorse Huxley. the serpent seed theory then. Right. But, you know, uh, Thomas Huxley and all of these guys, Ayn Rand would be a poster child for that. You don't give a crap about anybody but yourself. And if you don't help me or further me on my agenda, then you're suddenly worthless yourself. And so that really what it what it comes down to. And and I've decided that while there are some noble people that are trying to cling on to what they see in a utopian fashion, some of the good parts of it, the main mouthpieces of it and the main money behind those mouthpieces is it's a front and it's a Trojan horse of big business. And now I see that big business is the big front. And like, like an, an older gentleman who I know who doesn't understand any of the stuff we talk about, he always told me, follow the money. Yeah. And he didn't know a lot of the stuff, and now I'm getting more and more that follow the money it answers a lot of questions. Well, and the, those big business people will sacrifice the social and civil libertarianisms for business interests. They do it all the time. Yeah. They're right. small government, except when it comes to government contracts and set-asides. Right. Well, the way, they big actually, government. the way they actually run their business is not a democracy. Oh, heavens no. It's, you know, that's... It's, e- even the shareholders don't right. know what's going on. Right. E- even they don't know. you you got board members and golden parachutes and stock options and all that. And, heck, most of the people who think their 401ks are doing good, they have no idea where the money's going from the company. But... James Fifield came into the first congregational church of Los Angeles in the mid-30s, and he decided to apply some of these new thought uh, things, Norman Vincent Peale stuff, uh, in a big business context, because you find most of those books on the business section in bookstores. He applied that, decided to make basically what we would call the first mega church in Los Angeles, and he was called the Apostle to the Millionaires. And he he actually extolled the God's blessing through men who were multimillionaires, and all of the big businessmen in town started going to his church. Many of them later got into some bizarre religious stuff, at which the book later talks about. But he collects all these people in Los Angeles to this megachurch, he goes to the National Association of Manufacturers, who are basically stuck, and he tells them, I know how to make America love you again. We need to go make all the clergymen in America your mouthpiece. And we basically, in so many words, we need to redo a gospel for them to preach, to actually sell the big, the big business message. And it got to be so bad... And then, by, by the way, he had somewhere in the ballpark of a third or more, even up to two-thirds, of clergymen getting their newsletters, basically having this Christian libertarian teaching, business teaching, to, to, to that percentage of all the clergy in America that were being influenced. Now, it's not like today. People think today, well, I get a lot of newsletters in my in-basket on my email, and I delete most of them. 
Back then, if people actually had the money to mail newsletters, people, attention, yeah. people didn't get that stuff all the time. Pastors or anybody else, when they got it, it's like, oh, well, this they spent some money on this. This looks important. And they'll just sit there and read that. And month after month, years go by, it starts changing views. But what they did was they started having um, competitions where pastors would need to preach on things like why big business was the savior of society and preaching sermons and the the one they picked the best would win like five thousand dollars which back then in you know we're talking about in the 40s and stuff was a lot of money so we have basically mercenary preachers preaching for hire for money uh, doing the bidding of someone that nobody in their congregation knows about Wow. Or why or why they're doing it. And it really hasn't stopped because those same people now are funneling money through Christian media. They're funneling yeah. it through mainstream yeah. media, which is dovetailed to Christian media. And now I've been able to show in the next book I'll show how the Koch brothers and people like them are funneling money through the actual uh five oh one three C's. Yes. Where they're actually getting the money in there, they use cutouts like where they the they act did. like like I was saying they act like they're social libertarians, yeah. but they're funneling all this money into theocratic. See, right. see yeah. a lot of this money. What happened was when they were getting taxed so high, and the inheritance tax was so high, the death tax. They used yeah they used the foundation is a way to basically launder the money, not only launder it from their hands, but also launder it to get it eventually to their heirs tax-free. They put the money in these foundations. All of the proceeds of the hundreds of millions of dollars in each are going to bankroll the stuff, which dwarfs anybody else's voice, the money that they're using for this. So they use this, and then after X number of years, the proceeds goes tax-free to their heirs. Yeah. So the taxpayer's getting screwed. You know, they're not paying the taxes that they say that they're supposed to do it, and they're using it to brainwash all of us is what they're doing. What kind of circulation numbers did they have in those? Well, we're talking. Those uh, letter campaigns. I'm going off the top of my head. Uh, I think there's. Now, you're talking about this is just clergymen. They're going to the the Pied Pipers of every congregation. Yeah. But I think they were getting. Close to like a hundred thousand. So that's really big for America at the time. That's and this is nineteen. Yeah, this is nineteen forties, nineteen fifties. Yeah, there we're, was. We're, I think you cite even in the book there was one one clergyman or one pastor that said like, "Please stop sending this to me. This is, this is against <laughs> everything I believe in." Or every like once in yeah. a while, a letter would sneak through on their right. uh, their letterhead saying, "This is totally against everything Jesus taught." Yeah, because it wasn't just this was called faith and freedom was the one that he did. Wow. There was another one called the Christian Libertarian by a I think Howard Kirshner that came in. And when you read these things, it we look at it today and it's so blatant. Uh, one of the ones I talked about in there, the headline story was about the good old days of African colonialism <laughs> and how black people had it so much better when they had white masters over them in Africa, and now that they've gotten their freedom. You know, like in the early 60s, how, oh, disaster is going to happen to these people because now they have their freedom now. And then they try to argue somehow that the Bible actually justifies what right. they're saying. And, and it's more of that bile on every page, and people ate it right up. And that the yeah. people who are the leaders now of our Christian media and conservative media was raised on that kind of material. Yeah, that's well, there's, their, 
the generation before them. There's right. also as you get into the fifties or late forties, early fifties, right? You start getting these radio shows and even I guess early television productions of these freedom hours, and you had people involved in this like Bing Crosby, mm-hmm. Cecil B. DeMille. Right. Now Cecil B. DeMille, Jimmy Stewart, went to Fifield's church. Cecil B. DeMille was like buddy-buddy with yeah. James Fifield. I mean, of course, you know, this is the guy who made all the biblical epics of right. the time. Right, Back in the in the teens and, you know, the Ten Commandments. It, well, a lot of people don't stuff. know the Ten Commandments was almost a pseudo-government operation. That movie, yeah. it was a blockbuster. That that and the, that Gone with the Wind were like the first two real major blockbusters. It was actually done in concert as part of a government program to make America get religion— to fight communism they they had a program where they actually had a psychological operations program through religion so the but but that that's really interesting because then while you have that on one side then you're having this concerted effort to shape what the religious narrative is at the same time so it's like being squeezed and they i know that no one could relate to this today in this narrative but they kept saying socialism is the great enemy of mankind yeah yeah Um, yeah assistance for the poor is cheating god and is cheating them if you help people who are out of work or need the 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 new deal was the most evil thing they'd ever heard and people don't know that at the time one third of all americans were out of work yeah i mean one third were out of work with no safety net whatsoever it was an economic disaster well and when i when i meet the you know your standard 20 year old libertarian i'm just like have you ever talked to your grandparents about right what was going on at the time, like I just... right, right, exactly. Well, that's why Dickens' London is their ideal dream. You know, as long as you can build the walls high enough to keep the uh, the riffraff out, and you can get just enough of them to keep for servants. I was watching a documentary about about the subject was about this woman's um, father that had been like slowly brainwashed by Rush Limbaugh and Fox News, and yeah. she's interviewing this person that's an expert on. The, the John Birch Society specifically, and she says that their ideal is 1900. Yeah, that's right. To go back to 1900 when there's no exactly government right. control whatsoever. It's just free reign, total Gil- Gil- gilded age. laissez-faire, gilded age, capitalism, you know. Right. The and Rockefellers that, and the Vanderbilts and, and maybe Morgan. That's absolutely against what we think of as our conception of libertarianism and this conception of the bootstraps that's not that yeah in that world you can't be a common person and rise up at all like yeah, well but you had plenty of the horatio alger stories that led led people to believe that you know you can you can you can be jp morgan you can yeah yeah of course. you know that's the, the same a lot ki- of it was inherited well the same kind of logic like that is the whole you remember the old adage that even a, a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then or a, a broken clock is right twice a day. If, if you take a pool of two million people, even in a libertarian scenario, you might have one or two people by accident that that put a smiley face t-shirt. Well, and if we look rich. at if we what look about at, yeah. everybody else, if we look at how those Gilded Age guys got got that wealth, it was not always um, legal it was, means. It right, was a lot of right. dead people there was along no, the way. Like there was no you restriction. had to kill people. Yeah, there was no restriction on monopoly. You had to kill a so lot of workers. Everything. You had yeah. to kill a lot of workers. You had to kill a lot of striking. 
Union people, you send in goons to shoot them like Rockefeller did. Or you do illegal stuff to get enough money to do something right. uh, legitimate. Overthrow a few Central American companies and <laughs> well, countries yeah, and put some banana plants in there. It's, it's, I mean, it's basically the same thing the mafia did. It's just the mafia got Absolutely. to it later. Yeah. yeah. The real gangsters which were is around why in they, the 19th century. You know, which is why right. they probably got that special relationship with elements of yeah. the security intelligence establishment. Uh, well, they saw the, I mean, they saw the template. Yeah. Think about how many of them actually made money. How many of these old families made money dealing drugs? Yeah, in China. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's the China trade they yeah. talk about. A yeah. major portion of the royal crown of England is money from drug money from opium trade. Yeah, uh, the money that they that they've collected was from the opium wars. But but one of the points I want to make clear to people is that I I, I document this as you can vouch for in excruciating detail. So this is not just rants of like, well, I just feel like this is how it went. It's it's smoking gun of how this slowly was developed. But the thing that will blow a lot of people's minds is that we hear today, if you watch Christian or religious media, well, God, that's what God is for. Everybody's going to make their own way and bootstrap and low taxes where it's at or whatever. You know, the socialists, godless socialists are all about redistribution of wealth. What they don't understand, because they don't read their own Bibles, that they, oh, we're sola scriptura, only in the Bible, but they don't know their Bible. When you go back and see the society that God set up and what he prescribed in Israel, there were two things that had to happen for their society to stay permanent and to be healthy and permanent. One of them was every one year out of every seven was called the Sabbath year. And the Sabbath year... Nobody could keep the stuff that they grew on their land. Now, they didn't have to go cultivate it. They let it grow wild. And anybody who was needy, the, the stranger, i.e. the immigrant, the poor, the, the, uh, the widow, orphans, uh, anybody from just anywhere could come up and help themselves. Yeah. One year out of seven. And God said, I'll make sure you have a bumper crop on the sixth year to get you through that year but you can relax yeah. take it easy i want you to have time off take it easy the eighth year i'm going to give you enough so you can have a year to plant and do all that and you'll still have enough to live on you know they never practiced that and part of the reason was it was not only to help people but it was to let the land rest yeah he says the land has to rest but they were too greedy to let the land rest that had been so giving to them. And all these horrible tree-hugger environmentalists that they hate actually recommend the things that God himself recommended they do to keep <laughs> the land alive. The other thing that he said that they had to do was every seventh, after every seventh jubilee, was, was our uh, Sabbath year was the year of jubilee. And this this is even more, you know, ungodly, liberal, socialistic. God said that all of the land had to go back to the original landowners before the beginning of the last jubilee, which ultimately meant back when they first started, when they moved in the land, it went back to all the common people's hands again so that all the people who went in and did all of these kind of dealings and of whatever way or another got their hands on land and started doing it, they knew at the end of 50 years they had to, quote, redistribute the wealth back to all of the people again. So what happened was they came up with a system with God's suggestion that they basically prorated the value. You know, like you were it's like buying a used car or mm -hmm. something or something with mileage on it. Well, you're only going to have it for 20 years. 
So, you know, I'll give you a deal on it. You know it's got to go back. The purpose was was that God knew that any kind of free forum economic system is going to eventually gravitate all of the wealth to a few, the greediest, the most uh, duplicitous, uh, most ambitious and dishonest, ultimately are going to get it. It's going to turn into oligarchy. Which is the way, yeah, it's the way every capitalist, and God knew that, and he said, if you do this, you'll be all right. And what happened was, and it's right in the Bible, all of the Sabbath years they missed where they didn't, uh, and, and by the way, if you look at that, they paid a tenth of their money for religious stuff to help the temple stuff. That that Sabbath year was a seven one seventh or about fifteen percent tax for just poor people. It was just fifteen percent for poor people to to take care of them, and they still were to have an abundance. So you know when we talk about low tax today. God was prescribing a higher tax to the people then, but it was to keep society healthy. When when they wouldn't do those, God said uh, through the prophets, he said, I'm going to put you in exile. So you're going to get drugged. Nebuchadnezzar's going to drag you over there as slaves, and you're going to spend a, a year there for every Sabbath year you didn't observe. People wonder, why in the world were they 70 years in Babylon? They were there because they missed 70 years of Sabbath years because he says, I am going to give the land the rest that you didn't give it. So I guess that makes God a rabid tree hugger, environmentalist <laughs> wacko, because he took it serious at the land. In fact, you, you read in the Bible at the end, when he judges everything, it's not because he likes to throw his anger around. He says he's going to take revenge on those, on the people who destroyed the earth. All of the innocent people and all the people who destroyed the earth, and he's going to tear down what he calls the great city Babylon. And that's what I talk about in this book. All of these things we're talking about are manifestations of the great city Babylon. And it says in the Bible, it says they trade in all of these different commodities as well as the souls of men. And it's, it says that he's going to tear it down in a day. And it says uh, all of the great men of the earth and great businessmen of the earth were in league with you. And it says by their sorceries, by your sorceries, were all the nations deceived. So God says right there, this whole big business system we're talking about, a money, wealth system, it has a sorcery component to it to deceive the world. And I just give about 100 years worth of it in this book and it says it's it's outright sorcery yeah that spellbinds people well propaganda i mean propaganda is a form of sorcery and it's all paid for by them you you finally find it it's at their feet well and that's that's just very simple usury and things like that we're talking about now our financialized economic system is nothing but the most complex form of sorcery you can imagine the way that they create wealth from nothing this right. is yes this is on a level that you i mean the common well, people do not even understand a tenth of right. how the right. financial system the, actually works fiat, these terms fiat like qualitative currency. easing and all yeah, this kind of stuff fiat currency and um fractional reserve lending is is money out of nothing that, that occurs, and it works great until it doesn't work. Yeah, but even since the 90s, the financialization of the entire economy has, it, it's insane. Like, if you go and look at all the numbers, it's 
It's just money from money, money from nothing. It's right. not based on which is what money capitalism for by definition is. Capitalism yeah, yeah. is making money and profiting simply because you're sitting on money. Supply and demand. It's it, not. It's, it's not, not because, landlordism. Also, that we're right. going into. It's. It's. It's not yeah. because you're smarter or you came up with a better innovation or you had something that really helped people or you even hustled. What it is because you were sitting on money. You call all the cards on how to make more. I have experienced this firsthand. People know I was an inventor. All you need it's is one million dollars from living. your dad. That's all you need. Well, yeah. Bootstraps. Yeah. yeah. Let's pull yourself up. Dude. Well, you know what? I used to think with Donald Trump that that's all he had was a million dollars, you know, and the yeah, shirt right. on his back to get started. Well, and some mafia and CIA stuff Tur- going on. Tur- turned out, he be, I, if I remember my data right, he became a billionaire by the time he was an adolescent. Well, that's because his dad was using the kids as a tax haven. Well... That's part of it. He also saved a couple of the casinos with Trump by uh, going in and buying a ton of chips in the casino and walking yeah. out and never cashing them in right. is a way right. to get a tax-free loan to bail well, out his son. So let's get back to the let's let's get back to some of these guys. Well, so, I, I just wanted to make that point clear yeah. that there's there's a there's a theme to this. There's a right. motto of exploitation to it. And and if I could just say one in case we we get cut off, I want to show people the thing that finally clicked with me against what these libertarians argue is they say oh government government is a tyranny all government is a tyranny and we've got to get rid of it because it tells us all what to do and finally it struck me when i went through all this data that wait a minute they are not the only coercive force in our yeah, culture yeah. that's why if you're a real libertarian i'm saying you you understand the coercive force and the concentrated power of big business international corporations who right. have hijacked and and run our government. well that makes you a terrible libertarian that's, that's it, that means it, you're right you, you gotta reckon it right, it's it about it reckon, recognizing concentrated power well, that that is that that is rent seeking like they like to say and, 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 and what and what coercive force is going to combat them you have to have a coercive force, and it's sad to say for all of its problems, usually government, which at least you get to pretend to get to vote your representatives, is the only shot you got to try to temper a competing force against them. Well, here's what, I, here's what I think. If you, I think if you, the way that I see my kind of libertarianism is yeah. just like, hey, if the government is doing bad shit, call them out. Yes, Right. But if the but if the people that if the corporate people are doing bad shit, call them out. Call everybody out that's in a position of power. Amen. Amen. The problem is with the corporate stuff. If you don't have the government regulators, you won't ever know about it. You won't you won't ever hear about it. Now, if they dump a bunch of pollution and your kids get cancer, maybe you could take them to court. Maybe it costs millions of dollars to take them to court, and when they're buying the politicians who pick the judges yeah, yeah. that's going to be reviewing it, what do you think your odds are most of the time? Because all, all this political philosophy really goes back to, even if it's just a mythology, it goes back to the small landholder in in the first part of America. It goes back to the early Roman Republic, and it goes back to this platonic cycle of, of there being these small landholders, and then it becomes oligarchy, and then that turns into tyranny. It's just, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just a cycle. Yeah. Right. And, and all you can do is manage it. And really, the only way to manage it is to take acknowledge that coercive force and try to set up another coercive force, hold it accountable, like what you're saying, throw the bums out if they don't do it. 
but that's about all you can do is manage it until well, and, the end of this world. And even if you're not, you're totally not idealistic about the ability to accomplish that successfully. You that still shouldn't affect you being able to criticize and see the tyranny in big business. Even well, if you don't think right, that you know exactly. you can successfully but, exactly. go but, but the problem is what I talk about. Well, you were right. The problem is in my book. What I show is that big business finally figured out if we pay media outlets yeah. and people who are trusted in society to tell people that that force doesn't even exist so that, or they don't understand So you're it. talking about the first mass media, which was the clergy. Their people are spellbound. Before even the rise of our of radio and television. That was right. the first one, and they, the, the they've continued stage. that. Yeah. And what happened was they learned mass media. Yeah. Some of the people who I know Adam has told me he didn't even know about some of these people that I bring up were followed by millions yeah. of people, millions of Christians, like this Carl McIntyre by um, – uh, this Kirshner fellow I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's this guy's name? Well, and like, uh, and, and like in 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 political theory, uh, authoritarianism and fascism is impossible without mass media. Right. Right. Well, yeah, it sure one, makes it hard. One goes with the other. But Billy James Hargis, most people don't know who he is. Yeah. Gerald L. K. Smith. These guys Let, who we don't know form the culture that we live in today. Let's talk about J. Howard Pugh. Okay. Is that you? You mentioned him, and and then I and he actually starts off that uh, section that I read. That's yeah. who Pew is. If anybody was wondering, but uh, he comes up associated with Fifield, right? And Early. he also he also is associated with funding Billy Graham. This is an oil guy, and then also right. it's all oil. He people. funded also the National Prayer Breakfast people, which are informally known as the family, right? Right. Which has, you know, the six-part Netflix documentary that I highly recommend. Right. And you should read the, excuse me, The Family by Jeff Shartlett, uh, and, which and, goes into the details about it. And there's this new thought, there's a new thought element to all this stuff, too. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the family of the association, Norman Vincent Peale, oddly enough, that was the, that's Trump's church. Trump is very much, he's very much, people don't believe me when I say this. But he's very much a product of the New Thought movement in a lot of ways. Well, and, and in the very next, much associated with this whole this the whole next nexus. Book, in the next book, I will show in a very lengthy section that he has his own James Fifield that few people know about. It's it's not this Paula White, these yeah. other famous televangelists. It's another guy. Uh, this guy is like a good friend of Dr. Dobson and some other people. Very controversial guy. But he, he already has a pro-big business, um, anti-environment, anti-worker rights guy who forms the main Bible studies. And Mike Pence, uh, Pompeo, uh, these are the guys who help basically get this guy in position. And I go about him in detail in the second second yeah. volume. So the same template is being used today as we speak. Right. Well, Pew was an oil man. Right. And let's talk about so like his association with some you, of this. You could almost say that the oil men, in many regards, have have constructed our culture without ever us ever knowing. You know, a lot of people know the Pew Charitable Trust. They do a lot of polling. They'll say, yeah. here's the state of religion in America and things, and, you know, have this wonderful thing. Uh, Pew was one of the big bankrollers of Christianity Today. Uh, although Sid Richardson, another oil man, 
was the guy who really put uh, Graham on the map. But Pew was the one who was a main bankroller getting Christianity Today going. But he wanted he wanted to dictate all of the editorial policy of Christianity Today. And they had another fellow, I think his name was Carl Henry, sort of a famous writer that was the editor, and they butted heads. And Pew eventually got mad at him. But Pew was, was a major bankroller of Fifield and what he did, the, the stuff that Truman and Eisenhower did to put faith in American life. Pew paid and bankrolled for a lot of that. And one of the things I've noticed, and I don't want to make anybody else upset in your audience if they would care, but it was a bizarre thing that all of these people that I found in these most critical roles where like they were this, the most hardcore ideologues often had connections to Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. And he was known particularly as a Presbyterian. And the only reason I th- could expect why was that in my observation, a hardcore Calvinist view that believes in the elect psychologically doesn't have any problem with throwing away a majority of people. And I'm not saying the average person who goes to Presbyterian church even thinks about that. I mean, Presbyterians you, are a wide But But one thing they don't have in common is that, yeah. they're, that they're Calvinist. Right, they come from okay. that single, that single they, root. They yeah. don't always think about the ramifications of Calvinism and the fact of the belief that God created the overwhelming majority of mankind to send them to the lake of fire. But when you accept that, whether you're the Puritans that have no problem burning up the Pequot Indians. Yeah, and we're the elect. We don't know who the elect is, but we're pretty sure it's us. That's one thing we know. You never hear one of these people say, I believe in that belief system, but unfortunately, I'm not one of the elect. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. <laughs> I don't think I've ever run into one of those. But you find, and I mentioned it sort of subtly in my book, and I'm not trying to say all Presbyterians are bad people. All I'm just saying is, just like I see a lot of baggage in the people in my Baptist background, you know, the, the original founders of the Baptist would be totally excoriated by current-day Baptist. Because it has changed so much from what it, how, how it was founded. The, there is a, a certain strain of Presbyterianism. For example, that's where the Christian Reconstruction movement was founded, which is the precursor of Dominionism. And Reconstructionism is the guys who trained the Falwells, trained all of our uh, Tim LaHaye's and people like that. Their theocracy teaching, which they had no problem with because they believe in the elect, and the elect get to make all the rules— and everybody else, who cares? They're going to the lake of fire. Who cares what they think? And so it all makes sense. If you accept that, that God wants to send most people to hell, then a lot of that kind of stuff sort of falls into place. And so that's a recurring theme. And, and certainly Pew was a card-carrying member, but his main concern was he didn't want any taxes. He didn't want any government regulations. And all of his peers had the same view about that and so what they want to do is spiritualize it and somehow say that god was of the same frame of mind as them and like i've told you i'll just give you a little glimpse what god taught it was a society they would say was a godless commie socialist system except 
God prescribed it explicitly and said, this is how you'll keep your society together from coming apart. Because what happens when you mention about the New Deal and about social gospel, if the New Deal hadn't happened, I think there was a good shot that we'd have either had an overthrow like they had in the Weimar Republic or the Bolshevik Revolution in our own country. Yeah, one way or the other. When people's backs are to the wall and they're not eating, they have nothing to lose. And so people say, oh, well, the government took over a totalitarian system or whatever. You don't know totalitarian if those people hadn't had a job. Well, you know, FDR FDR came from the capitalist class. He came from that. You know, we mentioned the China trade, the opium trade. His grandfather on his mother's right, side was yeah. was a part of that, and he right. so he came from that patrician class, right? And he he would try to say he would say stuff like they don't understand what I'm doing is actually I'm saving all their butts. That's right. You know, it's by fun. doing this, I'm trying to save capitalism. I'm not trying to just I'm not I you know I want to save this way of life. The first time I ever heard about the business plot where they all got together to overthrow FDR and put in. They wanted to get Smedley Butler to be the guy running the, you know, autocratic junta. Um, after it was found, Congress had all the hearings and found out that his story was true, but they wouldn't call any of the top guys even to testify. Some things never change, I guess, uh, as like today. But but the culprits uh, were able to avoid testifying, but they proved it all. And at the end of it, uh, uh, documentary on the history channel of all things about it they talked about and someone asked the press asked him at a like one of these black tie balls that that fdr was at and they asked him they said look these guys were out to overthrow you you know who knows what they would have done with him uh and they've not seen you do anything about this why have you not done anything and his comment i'm paraphrasing is that you know we all come from the same same old money families. And he says, we have other ways of dealing with these things. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was pregnant with meeting. Yeah. But you can only imagine how true that is and how do they really deal with it and how do we not know when it's dealt with. And a lot of people don't know, as you point out, you actually point this out in the book, that the, they actually took a lot of the controls away around like 1937 1938 and the recession there was a recession there was a dip right right before world war ii which of course solved the whole problem right yeah yeah start a war that usually heals things but the uh but yeah they tried to do that and and to do more what they said and it was disastrous when they followed what the businessmen said they had no reputation at all and james fifield came to their rescue and they said we're going to rewrite the gospel to fit the big business message government is evil government is of the devil any kind of assistance for the poor whatsoever is of the devil uh that that you're doing the worst thing you can do in the world is to provide you know the blind or elderly or women or whatever any kind of food you're spiritually harming them and that we need to privatize everything everything needs to be given to independent business uh any kind of worker protections were evil. Any kind of uh, safety protections or environmental protections, all of that, and in, in their newsletters that I quote in the book, they show where all this stuff was. Now, there's not a bit of truth to any of that in the Bible. Not a bit of it. And you know people swallowed it right up. So I feel like 
I feel like God has been slandered for a hundred years by the religious right. And That's God, some strong words, Mike. <laughs> I, I believe he's been totally slandered. And you know what? There is get gonna, some emails. I there know is going to be hell. Happening. There's going to be hell to pay. Maybe some literal as well as figurative when they're finally exposed. And you know, one of the only thing that is guidance. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, you know, everybody's finding mystery about the future. There's only one thing it says to do. It says, get out of Babylon, my people, and be not partaker of her sins, so you will not participate uh, in her judgment. Sounds like a Rastafarian. How, so, how, long is it gonna, how long do you think it's going to take before this history to really come out there into the official narrative because it it's so important has actually shaped the entire political discourse of the country since then i mean well in this book i show every single narrative that they say now and i show where it started for example this whole thing like david barton stuff about oh we started as a christian nation and you picture george washington on his knees in valley forge and all this stuff Almost all of that was invented in a boardroom. The government formed during the end of the Truman administration because what they said was, and I put their quote in there, they were afraid that people were going to choose communism because they thought it was a superior system. Mm -hmm. They didn't say because their armies are going to come over or because they're going to do spy work or whatever. They were worried, just like they were worried about the New Deal. And I'm not saying this is a pro-communist. That's not yeah. the point. The thing that they're saying is they were worried that compared to what they were doing to people, yeah. communism would look good in comparison, just like it did with the people against the czar. Well, and, and I think Plus. that the, the Cold War itself actually made America have to prove that it could provide a better system. And it probably made us a lot better because we had to prove against something. And right. everything since then, since the end of the Cold War... They just don't care because they don't have to show that is better than anything. I think there was a military right. reason, too. And it, I think the reason being, and as I mentioned before, World War II pulls us out of the Great Depression. Well, right after World War II, yeah, another, 46, 47, another downturn. you have this downturn as right. the country readjusts itself to a peacetime economy. And all of a sudden then you get pretty much this constant war economy, which we're still Well, thank in. goodness we had Korea. The military-industrial complex. But it starts yeah. earlier than that. Yeah. 1947, there's an interview with... Um, I forget his name, but he was one of the... He was actually the second Secretary of Defense after McNamara in the Johnson administration. And he was a... Uh, he was an aide at the time to Truman. He actually says this in a documentary about Truman. He says that if we're going to do this we got to scare the hell out of the American people. Right. That's exactly right. And that's that's exactly what they did. Would you mind if I just share a little bit of that, read something pertaining to this? Sure. Uh, because basically Truman said we need universal conscription. Yeah. Everybody's going to have to go through this. And they came up with a program that they said we're going to basically push religion hard on everybody that goes through here. They put them through something like six hours of religious training a day. They would go off boat, and they the the first trial of it was at Fort Knox, not far from here. They said they went to all of the bars, everything else outside. They they basically made them informants. Like if they tried to buy alcohol, you you rat on them. Anything yeah. that was like pinup pictures out of the library, they took that out. It was non. Betty Grable showing some showing a little skin, you know. Nonstop hardcore. 
uh, you know, train uh, for this. And they said, oh, look at these godly men. They go to church every week. Well, they actually were forced to. And eventually, as soon as they stopped it, what do you know? They quit going. I want to add something real quick. My parents found these Life magazines, and uh, a few of them were from the late 40s. Yeah. Now, Life magazine was Henry Luce, right? Right. And Luce was one of these real rabid anti-communist now, people. Now, when was uh, this? Late 40s? The late 40s. Yeah, 19, in 1946. He was dropping acid a few years after that, really? according to my books. Oh, yeah, 19, him and his 1946, wife. Life magazine, this time period that we think this is the height of America historically. We've just won World War II. We've come out of it unscathed. We're the most powerful nation in the world. And there's an article in there that says, is the American dream over? That's the article. Yeah. Is that, I didn't read the article, but that's the title of it. Yeah. And, we're, you know, th- and this, is, this is the mindset at the time. It's very valuable, I think, to look yeah. at old magazines like that mm-hmm. and see where they were coming from politically. And the loose, the, that was, he was a huge proponent of the Cold War. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and he was following alternative religions just a few years after that with Bill Wilson, the founder of AA. Yeah. Uh, if I could share something with you just real quick about what was happening during this time, uh, and this is going to show you how it, this is sort of the same kind of thinking of that it ultimately got to, like uh, the guys who said we had to burn the village to save it in Vietnam, you know. This is where this kind of thinking leads you. Had to uh, win those hearts and minds. Right. Yeah. This this is in the in the part of the book where it talks about basically creating this whole legend of stuff like david barton talks about about america was founded as a christian nation it was all for christian goals and they're sacredizing us you know um when, when first truman and then eisenhower continued this thing is we got to do a psyop on the american people and we're going to use religion as a tool because they're afraid they're going to actually like communism if we don't uh, I, I add in here, it says, regarding the use of psychological warfare on civilians by the government with the use of religion, in 1951, Truman set up the Psychological Strategy Board comprising the CIA, Departments of State and Defense, and others who studied, quote, the potential role of religion in psychological warfare, unquote. Yeah. They use some of They're, that behind the Iron Curtain. Right. Well, Nick Redfern writes about and that. And the PSYOPs is on us, though. Uh, right, but they they're, took they're, it over the here. The guys who pay yeah. their salaries, yeah. they're using against. Okay, their first report stated, quote, the potentialities of religion as an instrument for combating communism are universally tremendous. Religion is an established force which calls forth men's strongest emotions. Our overall objective in seeking the use of religion as a Cold War instrumentality should be the furtherance of world spiritual health. Uh, and this is from a Dr. Herzog, an academic who specialist in this. Um, this PSB board, Psychological Strategy Board, was influenced by the earlier United States Information and Education Exchange, an overt psychological program authorized by Congress in '48 to to cultivate a favorable image of the U.S. worldwide, which established a three-person council of religious leaders to investigate the quote moral and religious factors of psychological warfare. Uh, the report recommended that public leaders emphasize the historic and continuing influence of religion on American society, the spiritual roots of U.S. institutions, and the religious component of major holidays. 
They even said that the 4th of July all along was a religious holiday, which it never was. But they started sending this information out, and this is stuff David Barton took up and is now saying this is old, ancient knowledge that, that was well, we, available. Well, we see that now when the, the whole thing about happy holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas. You know, this is the war essential Christmas. American Christian thing, the right. war on Christmas. Yeah. Well, let me just share a little bit more here. It says, uh, President Eisenhower also established the United States Information Agency, USIA, a notorious group there, and the Operations Coordinating Board, OCB, which in turn created the Ideological Subcommittee on the Religious Factor, beginning programs of religious education in public school, adding prayer after the Pledge of Allegiance, and religious discussions in the classroom. Major newspaper chains similarly followed suit. So when we hear all these Christians of like my parents' generation, we yeah, need to get yeah. prayer back in school. We need to get when it was an actual state engineered thing. It didn't exist yeah. before. It didn't exist before. This was done as part of a co-op psyops program of it. Okay. Now, what happened was in 1949, business leaders began using mass media advertising to promote religion, calling Americans to mobilize spiritually. He writes that the Religion in American Life Real campaign, led by General Electric President Charles Wilson, who called it spiritual rearmament, was a cooperation of corporations, religious leaders, and government, assisted by the Corporate Advertising Council, itself founded as a war marketeer, funded by corporate interests to the tune of $3 million for a three-week campaign. They used the image of Betty Crocker, J. Edgar Hoover, and others... <laughs> Uh, pushing now, Betty Crocker is a fictionalized person. Okay, <laughs> I mean she's just like a piece of artwork, and she's it's like Homer Simpson. Was was J. Edgar it. Hoover dressed as Betty Crocker? Now, yeah, I don't maybe. know. It could be promoting religion, but uh, it says each one could do their part by renewed devotion to religion. It ran ten years from 1949 to 58. Many thousands of towns participating, over 4,000 billboards deployed, and 2,000 newspaper editorials given supporting it, and 300 television programs uh, focusing on religious mobilization. Like you said, it included Bing Crosby, Ronald Reagan, Cecil B. DeMille, Walt Disney, mm-hmm. J.C. Penney, Fred, May- uh, Fred Maytag, Norman Vincent Peale, and others. And this whole freedom under God thing was engineered in their boardrooms, the CIA, to use this word, Next thing, it ends up on our coinage and our other things like that. But I wanted to just mention this um, um, fellow who's the head of GE, um, Charles Wilson. He had a role I don't know you were familiar with if when you read this from the uh, Korean War. Uh, another group that had Billy Graham in it was, listen to this, how, how dystopian this group sounds, the Foundation for Religious Action in Social and Civil Order. Or Frasco. Yikes. Frasco. Yeah. Doesn't that sound like your, uh, w- what was your movie about the kids that had the, uh, like the street crosswalking kids, you remember? You've always told me about the little uh, informational the... documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. The, yeah the public, the, the school safety committee. The school safety committee, yeah, like the, yeah. the little fascists that they yeah, raised for yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's this, it's this. Ratting on their parents. Yeah, yeah it's this yeah. PSA well, film from the 1950s. And it looks like it's innocent, and it's all about this kid's new day at school, yeah. and he learns about the school safety committee, and it. But it it's hilarious because it just looks like East Germany. 
There's right. even a set. There's right. even a part in it where like he gets a visit from his friend who's in the school safety committee who has a silver armband <laughs> that comes to talk to him and his parents. Right. Well, you know <laughs> about back, the school safety committee. Back not in those running days, in the halls. they gave the old Nazi salute for the uh, yeah. when they said the statue. Of right. The, yeah. Well, that that ended around 1945. Probably. Well, this this group Frasco, the Foundation for Religious Action and Social and Civil Order. Had Billy Graham in it, Henry Ford II, Herbert Hoover, and others. And they, part of their movement, they produced movies like Red Planet Mars. I don't know if you've ever seen that with me, where where basically the Martians broadcast to our country and the communists are finding it, but they say that they support Jesus of Nazareth and the Sermon on the Mount. Wow. And they <laughs> cause the overthrow of communist government and have a russian orthodox patriarch take over the Uh iron curtain Uh uh-oh yeah sort of like how it is now sort of (laughs) um but uh the the part i want to talk about this guy from ge and let's let's be one of the things that you also write about is i don't remember who this was but they also didn't they promoted islam too as a counter to communism which comes into great play in afghanistan in the 1980s right 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 They'll, they'll use any religion. Well, it's like Eisenhower said. He says, I support any religion, and I don't care what it is, you know, right. as long as it works. Right. He was the only guy baptized, actually, while he was in the White House because I thought it would look better politically. And what did uh, Brzezinski say? He said, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be the, the first poll to stick it to the Russians in <laughs> 50 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just mention a little bit more about this guy from GE, okay? Uh, the, the guy from GE... Um, um, Charles Wilson, his president, led Truman's Religion and American Life program. Because of Wilson's impressive work with Rial, Truman tapped him to run the Government Office of Defense Mobilization. Um, and the author, I quote, says that Wilson not only directed it, but also served on the board of Freedom Trains, American Heritage Foundation, and the Crusade for Freedom. Now, the Crusade for Freedom was a program they started, supposedly so citizens could pay... Uh, things to broadcast like Radio Free Europe and things like that for messages. What they didn't tell the public was that the CIA had already fully funded it, but they were making it a public funding to mask it as a front that it was a citizen-led thing. And so all these kids, kids were raising monies, nickels and dimes, selling stuff, and it was all a ruse. That not, None of it went like for what you thought it was. Well, anyway... Uh, a biography of Wilson on General Electric's primary w- website that I quote says that he was tasked by Roosevelt in 42 to be vice chairman of the War Production Board and picked by Truman to be director of Office of Defense Mobilization at the end of 50 to take over America's economy and place it on a war footing as the Korean War was spooling up, which they state as a job, this is the GE site, a job which was described in Washington as second in importance only to the presidency of the United States. Now, this is an unelected guy, okay? No one ever public any say in this. The strategy undertaken by Truman to stop the communist menace and its goal of centralized state-run economies, production and labor, you know, those are the things we need to stop. His way to stop the communist movement of doing that was to accomplish the very same thing right here in the USA— as the, as the following excerpted that I found from a December 16, 1950, New York Times story. 
that talks about the new emergency state he proposed for a strategic war in which no major enemy had attacked or threatened our shores. So no one was attacking us. But here's what they put. If I could read this, this is out of the New York Times, what was announced. This is stuff I wasn't taught in school, okay? Our whole purpose in America was to stop centralized economy and management. Here's their announcement in bold letters. President proclaims a national emergency. Auto prices rolled back. Rail strike ends. Allies give up. Ham hung. Uh, w rejects truce. Okay, here's what they say. President Truth. Uh, Truman proclaimed a state of emergency this morning and delegated many of his own war powers to Charles E. Wilson, the new mobilization director. So he's got war powers unelected. Today was a day of action in the White House, in Congress and elsewhere in government. His officials moved to implement the president's declaration to the nation and the world last night that the United States would meet the challenge of communism. The Economic Strategy Agency canceled the price increases made by Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler in the last few days, and this was merely the harbinger of many new controls that eventually will encompass the entire economy. Industry invinced its readiness to accept any war production goals, striking railroad men returned to work, and the general response from the public indicated an acceptance of the austerity program suggested by the president. Truman took two actions this morning to start a drastic increase in the mobilization program. He signed a proclamation of emergency, which unleashed scores of additional executive powers, and issued an executive order granting virtually blanket authority to Mr. Wilson to carry out all aspects of war production and economic control uh, he deemed necessary. The authority received by Mr. Wilson will be subject to... in the executive branch of the government only to the veto of President Truman. In his proclamation, President Truman declared that the conquest of the world was the objective of communist imperialism. He said that this now constituted a threat to the freedoms guaranteed by the Bill of Rights, to the free enterprise system, to other rights like collective bargaining that free people had chosen for themselves. Mr. Truman called for sacrifices, for cooperation by state and local officials, for loyalty to the principles on which this nation was founded, and faith in our friends and allies. Now, these are all the principles that he's basically counseling with emergency powers. He expressed his confidence that the people would not be found wanting in courage and determination. He signed the proclamation in the Oval Room office at 1020. Only a few members of staff and photographers were present. That quickening of a mood was felt generally in the Capitol. The Senate Armed Services Committee approved a national civil defense program. The Senate Finance Committee met in extraordinary session to work the Excess Profits Bill and Economic Stabilization Agency clamped a freeze on automobile prices, the first of many promised controls. The executive order spelling out Mr. Wilson's powers and responsibilities appeared to leave nothing out that the industrialists could desire to tackle his job in an untrammeled way. It had been predicted he would get powers exceeding those of James Burns when Mr. Burns was the top mobilizer of World War II, and the document bore this out. The director stated the order shall, on the behalf of the president, direct, control, and coordinate all mobilization activities of the executive branch of the government, including but not limited to production, procurement, manpower, stabilization, and transport activities. The phrase, including but not limited to, left open the possibility that other areas of defense activity would be added. The fourth paragraph specified that the director of the Office of Defense Mobilization should report to the president periodically 
and established Mr. Wilson authority over cabinet members and other heads of federal agencies where mobilization projects were concerned. Under the original concept of partial mobilization, geared to what was then believed to be a comparatively small war in Korea, most of the control agencies were dispersed in federal departments. This fourth paragraph gives Mr. Wilson ascendancy and the control of the dispersed agencies, and he is expected to consolidate them as he gets organized. The proclamation of emergency, apart from an important psychological effect, it is expected to have on the approach of the average citizen to his part in the crisis, revives scores of powers which have been latent. Some of them have been rescinded by Congress in 47, and some were enacted since then but could be given life only by this proclamation. And so he began to be known as the co-president. And the press of the time saw, saw, called, him, called him the co-president, and he could do basically whatever he wanted. No one had attacked us. No one was threatening us. And um, by edict, he was given control over the entire economy Worse than any Soviet system. Even they weren't that centralized in a, right. in a single person. Yeah, at least you had yeah. a supreme Soviet and you had regional groups. This was one man running everything. That's well, why I said you got to burn a village to save it, I guess. This is this is an element that's in um, Kennan's long telegram where he warns about basically the policy of containment against the Soviet Union. But in one of the sections, he actually warns about we need to be careful – that we don't become them. Uh, let's talk. I want to talk. A, I want to get to this before we stop. Okay. Uh, because I think this is important. We These, might have to do a part two. Uh, we may have to do a part two. So, well, this may be boring to everybody. You, I don't know. You mentioned uh, we, we're going to probably do like part two, part three, part This is thousand. very juicy. Um, James Hargis. I think. Yeah, Billy name. James. Billy James Billy Hargis. James Hargis. There's some scuttlebutt about him. And I want to talk, let's, we need to talk about the Chorus family. Okay. B- B- Billy James Hargis is one of a school of guys, just like I mentioned that Gerald uh, L.K. Smith and others, um, Carl McIntyre, nobody seems to know about, but they were big deals in the middle of the last century, like in the 50s and stuff, up through the 70s. Um, these guys were the control of the religious right media. Almost all of them were Holocaust deniers. They were very anti-Semitic. Um, and I could go worse from there. It, it gets worse from there. Uh, the readers can read a lot about them. They had were bringing many, many millions of dollars in in the 50s. These, these businessmen that I'm talking about were bankrolling them. These these corporate guys were were taking these anti-Semite Holocaust deniers, that you know guys who were sympathetic to the Nazis during the 30s, not wanting us to go to war with them. You know, a lot of people know Father Coughlin. Uh, he was one guy who was known of that reputation, very very influential and powerful guy, but he wasn't alone. These other guys were peers and were at least as powerful. And some of them went on in the 70s. The funny thing is these were your typical right-wing conservative tough guys that talked a big thing about defense and we got to get tough with people and no more Mr. Nice Guy. We got to be big buff guys, you know. Just like I, I know you were going to mention the uh, uh, Edwin Walker, who yeah. also has connections to um, Birch Society. Like a lot of people don't know, 
that the Koch brothers' dad was one of the founders of the John Birch Society. Um, And, you know, guys like Pew and these other people were all sympathetic. The people who wrote Faith and Freedom, they got into the alternative religions, including UFO cult religions, which is in the book. There's lots of weirdness in this book about the UFO cult thing, parapsychology and things like that that were part of their action. They merged it all together with right-wing religious uh, teaching and politics. Well, one of the guys you talk about, and that's G.K. Uh, G. Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, was. He wanted to be Gerald a part of L.K. Smith. Yeah, or, right. He he built later built the Christ of the Ozarks, right? But in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. But he wanted to be a part of William Dudley Pelly's Silver Shirts, right? Which ties into the I.M. movement, right? Guy Ballard. Right. Which also, I mean, there's a couple of... Right, and the, then it got weird. Yeah, there's a couple of... Uh, Adamski... Right. ...was was was associated with them because of the Mount Shasta stuff, and then also, uh, I think uh, I think it's George Hunt Williamson. Yeah. But it, it goes into the whole alien These are all connected to right-wing people, all part yeah. of it. But the thing about Billy James Hargis you'll see in the book was that um, he was even suspected as a suspect of doing some of the bombings... I think in Little Rock, when they were trying to integrate the schools, really? and and he was the FBI was considering him a suspect uh, in that, and he was very very fundamentalist, very much about high moral values, and our country was going to pot because of you know these hippies and low moral values, a very much a you know a Christian hour of purity, and as you would expect, um, one of the stories that came out and one of them you know, major media outlets was that two of the ones that went to his school, uh, uh, this guy and girl that were getting married on their wedding night, I guess they started confessing things about their past. And, and both the guy and the girl admitted that they'd lost their, their uh, virginity (laughs) to Billy James Hargis. You know, the boy at the, like at the choir practices and things like that, with the choir practice yeah. with the boys. Yeah, he, he liked them both. He liked the girls and the boys. Now, he, the big tough guy. Yeah. Now, you know Edwin Walker, right? You know, I, I know Edwin, Edwin Walker primarily because of the Kennedy assassination stuff, which I'll have to See? take umbrage on one thing you wrote about, which I don't think Oswald was the one shooting at him. But Well, that's what he said. Yeah, he said they were shooting in his house. Uh, right, Lee somebody was shooting, was shooting in his house. Yeah. But they, well, that was the story. Yeah. Was he was that was shooting at him? But the uh, he was like one of them big patriots. He's standing for America, and you know, it reminded me a lot of General Boykin and that reputation. But he also was the guy who tried to resist the integration of schools down south too, and got, I guess, he got arrested for it as a matter of fact since we're talking about the we mentioned the kennedy assassination you see those famous you'll see that in jfk and other documentaries about yeah. the kennedy assassination whereas the, the 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 billboards that went up in dallas that said right. for treason and it had like the profile shot like a mug shot just you know? days before those were the ones that walker put up right and he was a folk hero amongst the good old bible belt people and and he toured with Billy James Hargis, and they were going to bring America back to God and probably elect one of them, you know, uh, for it. And he was all about honor and decency and being a macho man. Yeah. And unfortunately, he was arrested uh, offering sexual favors to men in a bathroom for the undercover It was because cops. he had a wide gate. That's, what, that's all it was. Well, that's, that's the way to say it, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but uh, 
as, as is commonly the story, you know, whether you're looking at the head right, of the National Association right. of Evangelicals or whatever, the more they squeal about some particular immorality sin, the, the odds are high that they're probably well, right in the middle of it. With Walker, you're probably getting into this weird Spartan stuff, right. like Ernst Rome and the SA Stormtroopers, this weird fascist homosexual. The more macho just, and, and uptight they yeah, are about this stuff, right, the more right. likely they got that part of their life. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, these guys were all part of a, a clique, getting millions of dollars, having millions of supporters, and the good rank-and-file Americans, you know, the Bible Belt people have, thought that they were the real godly men, and they listened to them every week on the radio. They had big—it cost more. They, there was no internet to get on and have a show or a podcast. You had to pay big money to get on around the country, and the big business people sent them the money. And they always had a big business-friendly message. And so money, you know, and that makes me, I hate to say this, but when you think of some of the guys we know on our watch, like the Alex Joneses of the world, you know, I remember Alex Jones used to talk about getting above the left-right paradigm and watching out for (laughs) both paradigms. And he used to defend the people that when the guys on the right shields were moving against the people, you know, when they were protesting, he would defend them. But obviously there's not enough money in that, having that message. That's why there's no such thing as peace profiteers. And so now now we see a message where it seems like he's rife with money, has access to a president on, on a close basis, and he's sympathizing with the guys in the riot shields, you know, and the police brutality against people who are protesting who says they're all just evil liberal socialists now. And he definitely has picked a side in the left-right paradigm. And that's where the money is. And evidently, that's the way it's always been. And so we have to make it. So I don't know what big corporate people are funding you all. I assume it's <laughs> I assume it's big oil you, money. They can go to patreon.com slash conspiracy. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, they want to send us some big some big checks. <laughs> could be Nambla could be supporting you for well, all I know. I don't know. Well, the Coors family. Yeah. This, you know, I mean, Coors. I mean, come on. Boy, the clean cut, just as clean as a rocky stream, rocky mountain stream. I mean, if you watch those guys on TV, there's no more fresh scrubbed people than the Coors. Um, did you know that much about the Coors family? Uh, I, I knew that there, there was, was some, some boycotting way back in the day. I know because yeah. of, because of their ties to extreme right money and things yeah, like that. But I didn't. Know I just this. have a vague recollection of hearing about it secondhand from older folks. Right. I. Yeah, I mean, not to, not to the level of information that's in the book about them. Yeah, I had to go dig for some stuff. Of course, that I didn't. That I didn't. Man, know I sure like guys. that banquet, man. That's gonna mess me up, dude. <laughs> well, I can't drink cores anymore. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know very much about them. But um, I'm not sure if I'm putting my finger. Oh, here we go. Um, uh, one of the key things that came out, there was a story in 1988, the Los Angeles Times, that, you know, a lot of people west of the Mississippi didn't know, or east of the Mississippi didn't know much about quarries because they didn't distribute, you know, out this way. That's why the bandit ladder. had to bring it over. That's right. right. That's the what, bandit, yeah. right, right, eastbound and down. But um, they have been one of the biggest funders of the most extreme hard-right organization was Joseph Coors and the Coors family along with the Pews, along with the Amway uh, Corporation. Now, um, 
Yeah, Amway comes up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like that's now <laughs> all of these like fundamentalist religious groups. Most of them are you know anti alcohol. Even you know Falwell Junior's group while he's throwing back you know yeah. the liquor. Right. Um, Lynchburg's in a dry county. Well, no, I think that's Tennessee. That's another Lynchburg. Yeah. 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 But basically. Um, I said, you know, growing up like I was in a teetotaler family, I didn't realize that a major financial backer that makes their favorite Christian political activist organizations that promote traditional family values and units financially viable is actually a major beer brewer. In 1988, the Los Angeles Times did a profile at that time on Joseph Coors and the Coors family. They quoted his son, Jeff, who had just taken over as president of Coors at the time, and he stated that while the press made his family Cinderella-like and all lovey-dovey and all these smiling faces, because, you know, some of them are very photogenic, he says, and what a wonderful family, he notes, and my father has a mistress all the time. He says, uh, this is the one that funds all the, the Christian organizations. He said, Dad just ran out on Mom after 48 years for a younger woman and has gone off to live in the lazy, hazy climes of Northern California wine country. Um, and then they say that for better than a decade, Coors has been the company Americans most love to hate. Boycotted by organized labor, racial minorities, women, gay students, teachers, and other special interest groups. They have The Coors family has been denounced as racist, sexist, union-bashing, right-wing fanatics. Um, they quote his son, Jeff. He says, well, Joe Sr. Joe, Joe Sr. is an adulterer. And therefore, a sinner, along with homosexuals, gluttons, blasphemers, murderers, liars, and a whole bunch of others. Um, however, all five of Joe Corr's sons, inspired by their mother Holly, are self-described born-again Christian fundamentalists, hardcore. The oldest son, Joe Jr., for instance, even lists Bible prophecy as a hobby. On his company resume, that says the whole family is awaiting Armageddon, which Joe Jr. believes will occur around the year 2000. Now, I don't know if you knew the Coors family was was big in picking dates for Armageddon, but um, they did they, they stock up on Coors? Yeah, well, yeah. Drink now for tomorrow you die. Uh, they point out the family fighting to keep union organizers from their workers as the only non-unionized brewery in the nation, and mentions its quiet manufacture of military weapons technology. I don't know if you knew that. When I worked in the Air Force, I was surprised that one of my office mates next to me worked with the Coors company developing armor. One of their things they make is ceramic armor, uh, Coors really? company. Yeah. Um, now, uh, the, the, uh, they noticed that, that about Coors Chief Joseph Coors is a longtime personal friend of Ronald Reagan's, and over the years he can also contribute to almost every white ring cause of consequence. Reagan contributes Joe Coors to electing him. He provided the money that actually basically ran Reagan's campaign. Um, most recently, he wound up center stage at the Iran-Contra hearings after personally donating a $65,000 airplane to Nicaraguan freedom fighters. And later in here, I actually quote from the hearings where he was testifying that he was working with a guy with, I think, General Secord and Oliver North, there was a law on the books, a past law that you could not contribute to them because these guys were despot, fascist, terrorists, torturers, yeah. terrorists. They were as bad, if not worse, than the people they were trying to overthrow. So there was a law on the books. Definitely don't. Well, why did that bother Oliver North? 
he and these other guys would just go around and not tell anybody. And they used all of these guys uh, in, in these right wealthy guys to actually uh, fund airplanes, cash and stuff. And in fact, later I show how even Pat Robertson was going down there meeting with the with these Contras and taking stuff down for them. There, there was actually old magazines I got that shows him meeting with them, bringing stuff for them. Uh, at the same time, Reverend Moon, who was funding most of the Christian organizations, he he kept Liberty afloat and actually provided the top management post. It was actually Mooney's running Liberty University. He also was providing all of the money, and they were involved in overthrowing a number of countries in Central and South America, Reverend Moon's church, in concert with our religious right people here. We're doing it together. But it says... All uh, these connections, man. It's yeah. like, I mean... Yeah. Dr. Now, Future, do you have like a chalkboard at home and you're like got all it's these a, arrows? It's like a spaghetti. Just, yeah. Well, let me just share something that would be inspirational to you. Uh, his brother, Bill Coors, both brothers having been become billionaires by 1988, told Denver area black businessmen in a speech in 84 that slave traders had done them all a favor by dragging their ancestors to this great country in chains. Amazing. Uh, likewise, Coors had added, descendants of Mexican wetbacks should also give thanks that they got here, even if they had to swim the Rio Grande. Did he actually use the word wetback yes, in the speech? Yes, that's what he used. Now, does that sound like our president? I mean, it's the same. That's what money will do to you. That's the same thing that the guy who owned the L.A. Clippers called black people, you know, like Magic Johnson and people like that. Th- this is what happens, what money will do to you. Uh, it yeah. says... Uh, as far as their operations, especially controversial, was a polygraph test that Coors administered to all prospective employees, probing into everything from weekend drug habits to marital infidelities to homosexual activities. It's like Scientologists. Yeah, it's like an e-meter. Yeah, but uh, they're doing this for their employees, Yeah, uh, running them through this. Um, and they kept doing that test until two years ago. Um, uh well, here's how together they are. You know, they're passing on their religious wisdom to everybody. Uh, the misery Bill Coors endured when it became clear more than three decades now that his first wife was an alcoholic, and then the awful, uh, awful suicide of his oldest daughter five years ago when she leaped to her death from a New York City high-rise, leaving a husband and babies behind, and then going way back, everybody still speculates whether this was an accident, when the senior Ad- Adolph Coors fell to his death from a Florida high-rise in 1929 at age 82, uh, or another Great Depression suicide. Um, His fourth son, Grover, became a temporary hippie hiding out with California with LSD, um, burning his draft card. Um, The chairman of the board, Bill Kurz, defends alcohol by saying that it was cigarettes and not alcohol that killed his first wife and says that beer is a food product, <laughs> it's actually good for you. There's a growing, have now here's how, they use, here's how they use their data. Okay, there's a growing body of, clin- this is how he's telling LA Tab, growing body of clinical evidence that people who use moderate amounts of alcohol enjoy a better degree of health than those who abstain. You can reduce your health risk by consuming an alcohol equivalent of two or three cans of beer a day. Not hey. that they'd have any, you know, connection. Interest in that. Yeah. 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 This, uh, yeah. 
There's uh, no reason for that study. We just sure, yeah. put sure that it's out a there. totally independent medical study. Yeah, now, right. in this article, it talks about this super opulent place that they're in, and they're all old guy, old money. They they sound like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, <laughs> the same way like the Koch brothers do. When I've seen interviews on their, pro- they lean back, and I've been around people like that. I've been around billionaires and people uh, in business stuff, and they pontificate, and they they think they understand the whole world. And they're in such an insular world, they have no idea. You know, he was saying uh, here, he says, uh, um, he reiterated in the interview that he was glad blacks were brought to American chains because it was for their own good, and they have cashed in uh, where there was an economic opportunity. Brother Joe climbed in, uh, chimed in by saying Senator Edward Kennedy was a common murderer and then railed against American Indians. I guess that's a Chappaquiddick reference. Yeah. yeah. He said that Indians chose to stay on the reservations versus becoming Americans, and now they're upset that the government didn't give them more money. Um, and then re- regarding Joe, he says, years ago his nomination by both Presidents Nixon and Ford to sit on the Public Broadcasting Corporation board were killed by a Senate committee after a furious debate over his politics. But even more harmful... He says was the failure to get attorney Ed Meese's previous job as White House counselor to Reagan in 84. So we could have had libertarian Sesame Street. <laughs> yes, according to the chorus. And, and then I guess black people would come on Sesame Street, the Muppets, and say how lucky they were that they were brought in chains, maybe, you know, <laughs> by their... Uh, but anyway, I won't, I won't go on, but it gets worse. As Bill Hicks said, the King of Kings brought to you by the King of Beers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it goes downhill from there. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, the more you learn about Coors, uh, yeah, in there, the Chicago Tribune, I quote, 87, says how Joe Coors worked with CIA Director Casey and Oliver North to go around U.S. law and congressional directives to secretly get money to the hard-right Nicaragua Contra rebels. And then they, they just uh, outline his testimony about how Oliver North was the guy who, who pulled all that stuff off. You know, he was convicted, Oliver North, and got yeah, off on a technicality. Yeah. There's uh, a certain be- church here in Nashville that has him speak at quite a lot. Oh, yeah, and it's one of the most popular churches here by a man who almost completely decapitated a woman for insulting his boots. Yes. Yes. So now True we're story. just we're just <laughs> barely getting into the 1980s. Yeah. Oh, and we've just sort of skipped around. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a ton of this stuff. What I just read you was like a page or so, and there's over 400 pages of worse stuff than this. When it when I show you how the people who were writing those newsletters for the clergy, the hard right clergy we're also experimenting with alternative religion and channeling, contacting spirits. Um, the first ones to do LSD. What I document in here is all these guys who started this stuff with the clergy were the first ones to get their hands on LSD. And they were working with Sidney Gottlieb, the guy who ran MK Ultra. Mm-hmm. They were taking it together along with with uh, Bill Wilson that started AA because that Aldous was initially that was initially supposed to be a thing for the elite. It was for the elite. And that's why when it got out of their hands to the common people they went and worked through their government to make it illegal. I think it's 66. Right. Um right. but it this all kind of goes back to those ideas like I said earlier how uh and I think it has a 
earlier precedent that they got it from, and you know maybe an ancient one that a lot of a lot of these people think that that Christianity, their version of Christianity, is almost a layered esoteric system, and that they have their version where they understand the true meaning, and it's a lot different, and then they have the version for the masses. I think that's what a lot of this. You just hit the nail on, on the head. Do you, do you, that's exactly where Mike goes in the yeah. book. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, your best shot on this, we we do have a way around that. And the way around it is that you just go pick up the book yourself and read it. And I'm not talking about my book. I'm talking about the Bible. You go read that. It makes a lot of sense if you don't have it. it I have to admit. Uh, uh, Alan Moore, and he's the guy that wrote Watchmen yeah, and all yeah, those things. Right, you know, he's right. a practicing magician and the weird stuff. But he said something was very true about organized religion, and I and I say this as someone who participates in a local church myself. He said he sort of saw organized religion to God, like he saw Colonel Tom Parker. You know, Elvis's agent. You know, and I thought that was pretty insightful because Colonel Tom Parker was always seen as the guy who was a leech. He was the gatekeeper to to, uh, to Elvis, and he basically directed his career and how people perceived him. And he was nothing but a leech. Now, I'm not saying every preacher out there is a leech or everything else. There's a lot of good ones out there and good stuff. But what I'm saying is, you go read it for yourself. Jesus speaks pretty plain. Now, is he deep? Sure. I'm spending my whole life trying to figure out, like, and some of it I even have in here, like, wow, maybe this is what he was getting at. Because I have to deprogram myself from stuff third-party people have told me. And it's like, well, that doesn't match up with what he said. But you go read what he said, it debunks 80 85% of what you hear in Christian media. Uh, it's it's pitiful. And so how, how do you think he feels to have his name slandered like that all the time? It makes me mad. You know, it's, it's, no one was yeah. a gooder guy than Jesus. There's a contradiction between what you're hearing in the conservative media as opposed to what Jesus actually taught. It's just a contradiction. I think it's going to end up being like one of these verses that I grew up, nobody around me knew and understood, and it was real scary. And it was, Jesus said, he says, the day will come, uh, you know, after death and the last day when people will come before me and say, well, didn't we do all these great things in your name? We cast out demons and we healed and we did all this stuff in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You know? And that always used to spook us. It's like, well, these people sound like they're good Christians. They said Jesus' name and, you know, praise Jesus and whatever and stuff. And something good was happening. How could that happen? But the fact is they didn't know him. It, it, he he laid out how a kingdom works based upon selflessness, upon helping weak, helping everything that's the opposite of what Darwinism is. Everything's the opposite of survival of the fittest and the thinning of the herd. You know, Darwinism teaches that the stragglers of the herd are going to die a horrible, gruesome death, either socially or any other kind of construct, and that's the way nature is, and that's the way it's supposed to be. The strongest of the herd move on. Jesus does the absolute opposite. Jesus says he leaves the 90 and 9 of the strong, and he goes and hunts for the one straggler, and he goes and hunts for them. So it's like the opposite of 
Darwinism. It's the opposite of the pseudo-libertarian movement, the Ayn Randism. It's the complete opposite. It goes and looks for the misfit. It goes for the misunderstood, for the, the weak, for the people who have problems. That's who he's spending all his time looking for. And our religious right media have gone with the other way, and, they, and, and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Well, do you think without without exploiting religion, any of these kind of ideologies have any kind of popular appeal? That's the thing. It's it's the it seems like it's their linchpin. I don't I don't it's think the, so. It's the biggest thing to appeal to. Well, and and I didn't quote this, but in the beginning of that Fifield thing, they say that we'll target the clergy because they're one of the only people that have any credibility left with the public. Yeah. And what they did was they traded it in like. Esau in the Bible, it said he traded his birthright for a mess of porridge. Now, and so now they've traded their spiritual birthright of guardianship. They traded it in. I say now they trade it from a mess of Trump porridge. Back then they traded for big business porridge. So they keep think about think about right now and the damage that is being done in the eyes of like the young people. Yeah. now people that are maybe. 20 30 years older than uh, younger than us and how they look at christianity and how they see it as just christian christians just hate everybody that's right. what they see right and, and so it, it does it, it's doing a lasting damage they're and frauds. it's exactly it exactly goes back to what you were talking about the dreyfus affair right it's peril and it's going to have lasting consequences what's going on right now probably at least the rest of my generation and beyond it, you know you know I, i'll even there's certain seminal events that set the course i i will say and people say this is unfair for me to accuse of this but i tend to look hardest at the people that nobody wants to say anything about you know uh the people who are beyond that's fighting words in fact i would say people on the hard right always talk about leftists being snowflakes Oh, their little feelings get hurt because I wasn't inclusive and I didn't include people who were different genders or different what oh those this little sissy snowflakes. Well, the right are snowflakes about a whole lot of things too. Because I have experienced it when I've asked some questions like what what does the Bible really defend about Zionism? <laughs> this is not anything about Semitism or loving Jews. That's not that's not the issue. The issue is even if it's okay, what's the right way that it's okay? Um, they get triggered. The military. Yeah. What, what, yeah. yeah. what can you say about the military? Can you critique the military in a right-wing culture it's without coming to hammer on you? Okay? Billy Graham is another one of these guys. Well, <laughs> you can you can badmouth Jesus, but don't badmouth Billy Graham. Okay? But uh, I would say that back in the late 60s, when the young people understood that something wasn't right with Vietnam and that they suspected we weren't being told the truth and all of their seniors said, oh, no, we could trust the government. You know, you just need to believe them. And, of course, the Pentagon Papers exposed that we had been lied to yeah. about Vietnam. But the young people understood that they were more insightful and they were marching well, they had to the make streets. a decision because they whether they wanted to die for it or not. Well, they couldn't even vote then. You had to be 21 to vote, but you could go die in Vietnam. And so when they were marching in the streets, if Billy Graham had said, you know what, these guys have a point, 
these guys have a point, and I'm going to go down there and march with them. That would have been the end of the Vietnam War. And we would have saved tens of thousands of servicemen's lives if, if he would have done that. But what he said was, oh, those just kids are a bunch of communists. They're, they're, are, they're being used as tools of the adversary and willing accomplices with them. Now, what's the odds that those young people are going to want to listen to the Christian message that Billy Graham says then? Right. What, how, how are they going to ever right. take him seriously when they know what they're doing is right? Even if you debate how they do it, there's, there's a certain, and they hear that contempt for them. Yeah, they're, but, they're, but they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so, well, exactly. Yeah. But I blame him for it. He, he could have not only saved all those lives, but he may have ended the generation gap. He could have put a stop to it. You know, Martin Luther King had a very different reaction. I'm not commenting about his personal life. There's some real questions about that. But I'm talking about his public life. He had a very different response, and he inspired young people. He wasn't a young guy either, but he inspired them because their common sense told them it was right, that everybody ought to be, have a right to sit at a lunchroom counter. Right. Okay? And he believed that. Billy Graham criticized Martin Luther King when he was sitting in the Birmingham jail, wrote to him and said that, uh, uh, you're just wasting your time there. You're just wasting your life doing that kind of thing. So I think that was a critical time and a moment that had we lost a generation and then the generation after them and we're at another critical point right now uh where people are going to have to stand up i would like to be the kind of guy that says oh i want to be a peacemaker i want to help both sides i've done that my whole life i've done that i've done that in church when people were factions warring and tried to it was unsuccessful but i tried it but I'm feeling like now is more of like a time like the old Union song that they used to sing, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? That, you know, the ability for somebody to say, well, I'm above the fray. I don't want to pick sides. We have an existential crisis to saying who we are as a people, what our ethics are, our morals, how we treat people who are weak, who are different. And I'm thinking we're going to have to start picking sides. People have picked sides, and it's going to be ugly, but people have such an existential crisis. I hope my book and books will open some eyes and change some minds, but as you've told me, odds may not be very good. What I'm hoping is that maybe some of the people who listen on the show, when they go to be with their parents and they have war every holiday get-together, when they get together about this stuff and talking past each other, well, if they can't constructively have a conversation on these issues and speak the language of their older people, I'm hoping they could at least give them a book like this, talking from a guy who speaks the language of the evangelical. I know the religious right language and how they see stuff. I take a harsh position with them, but I don't badmouth Jesus. I don't badmouth good stuff. And I'm hoping maybe we'll read this, read this, and let's talk about it, you know? And if I can do that, maybe something constructive could come out of it. Because we're, we're in some pretty heady days, I believe. I mean, we could sort of, like they say, slouch toward Gomorrah, but that's not any better. I mean, we might not have a big powder keg blow up, but we're still going down a path, whether it's fast or slow. Yeah. So we have to decide what is moral, what is ethical. Does truth matter? Does integrity matter? Does are we our brother's keeper matter? I think that's a good place to stop. But before we do... Since it is around Christmas time, 
I did want Serfiel to tell you about something that is pertinent to our discussion somewhat. Okay. The Greatest Salesman. The book. Oh, well. The I what? Guess I'll, I guess I'll go get it. Just say. The what? <laughs> well, you can describe it, right? It's just this well, weird... Well, while, while it's, he's... While it's he's, this weird new thought book from like the... Oh, great. 50s or something. Oh, great. And it has to do with the Christmas story. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> the greatest salesman in the world. It is the Christmas story, right? You know... Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. I'm so glad that they take something as sacred as the incarnation of the created universe and they tie it back to something that's really important, which is good salesman. Yes. It's got the salesman <laughs> prayer in it. You know, a salesman prayer? The salesman prayer. Oh, I'm going to start prayer. crying. I can't read it. Yeah. I'll cry. That's like footprints <laughs> well, in the sand. So, I, so it's so basically about, it's about, a, it's about a young, poor uh, Arab boy... Uh, who uh, that's sort of like the greatest uh, man, and richest man in Babylon, same yeah. motif. You remember that? Book? Yeah, yeah. He yeah. he he uh, become he becomes uh, indentured to this uh, you know this great merchant, and uh-huh. uh, so to prove his worth, this merchant gives him some rugs uh, yeah. or some blankets to go yeah. sell in the you know in town. So he goes and travels all over Judea trying to uh, sell these blankets and just keeps striking out over and over again. And then finally he ends up in this little cave where this destitute couple shows up with their child uncovered. Oh, I don't wonder who that and, is. <laughs> and he gives it to him. He gives him the blankets because he's just you know down and out and going to return and let his master know he's a failure. And uh, then he goes back, and the the master rewards him with uh, the entire business. He passes it down to him, and and gives him this chest. He gives him this chest with these ancient scrolls in it, uh-huh. which are the salesman's prayer. Ah, because oh, he gave her, he gave a blanket <laughs> to the baby Jesus. Yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> so, so Jesus' wisdom is the key. Uh, he he came to Earth so he could teach people how to be better salesmen. <laughs> yeah, pretty that much. Right? Yeah. That's the Christmas, real Christmas story. Pretty much, yeah. Well, you look at it this way: he conned those three rich wise men out of all those wealth things. What a great salesman Jesus was as a baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. I mean, you know, talking about it's like selling the Pope a double bed. I mean, you you even got him on that. What I'm what I'm really inspired is this salesman prayer in the back. It's got praying hands on there. And how you can order one. People can buy salesman's prayers for it. And the real irony. I really want one. Actually, I've been looking for one. Obviously, the salesman's prayer that made this was he prayed he could come up with a con to get three dollars out of everybody. And his prayer was answered by giving him a salesman prayer to sell. Mike, will you will you do us the honors and read the salesman's prayer? Well, I I see it. I I just see it advertised here. Is it big enough to read? Where where. Show me where it it's is. It's in the book. I would it? be honored to read the salesman <laughs> prayer. If that would be the only thing people would remember about this talk here is a salesman's prayer, then I will accomplish something. You know, somewhere J. Howard Pugh is smiling somewhere. Yeah, yeah. To think of the salesman well, prayer. Well, I mean, this is very much like the new... The, this is... Oh, wow. It's like... It's, I, I it's felt that lengthy. this was pertinent to the discussion. I, okay. I really, I really well, felt you know. Can, can you overlay some uh, organ music or something? Yeah, we can do Sacred that. We can do that later. Yeah. Post production. Yes, sir. Okay, let's come on. Let's just let's okay. get serious right. and spiritual right. here. Right. Okay. 
I will pray as a salesman in this manner. It's like the Lord's Prayer, you know. I will pray as a salesman. Oh, creator of all things, help me. For this day I go out into the world naked and alone. This must be interested in door-to-door sales, to naked and alone. And without your hand to guide me, I will wander from the path which leads to success and happiness. I eat lots of money. I ask not for gold or garments or even opportunities equal to my ability. As great abilities I have. Instead, guide me so that I may acquire ability equal to my opportunities. You have taught the lion and the eagle how to hunt and prosper with teeth and claw. Teach me how to hunt with words and prosper with love so that I may be a lion among men and an eagle in the marketplace. Help me to remain humble through obstacles and failures, yet hide not from mine eyes the prize that will come with victory. Assign me tasks to which others have failed, yet guide me to pluck the seeds of success from their failures. Confront me with fears that will temper my spirit, yet endow me with courage to laugh at my misgivings. Spare me sufficient days to reach my goals, yet help me to live this day as though it be my last. Guide me in my words that they may bear fruit, yet silence me from gossip that none be maligned. This goes on. Discipline me in the habit of trying and trying again, yet show me the way and make use of the law of averages. Favor me with alertness to recognize opportunity, yet endow me with patience, which will concentrate my strength. Bathe me in good habits, that the bad ones may drown. Yet grant me compassion for weaknesses in others. Suffer me to know that all things shall pass, yet help me to count my blessings of today. Expose me to hate, so it not be a stranger. Yet fill my cup with love to strangers and to friends. To turn strangers to friends. And all these things be only if thy will. I am a small and lonely grape clutching the vine, yet thou hast made me different from all others. Verily, there must be a special place for me. Guide me, help me, show me the way. Let me become all you planned for me when my seed was planted and selected by you to sprout in the vineyard of the world. Help me, humble salesman, guide me, God. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, sorry. <laughs> the law of averages. You know what was the what was the most common word in that prayer? Me. Yeah. Me. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I didn't see in there is God, what are you thinking? What what are you, what should I do, God? Yeah, what do, what what do you got going on? You know? Or what matters after this world has passed? You know, what's left over once there's nothing left to sell to anybody. <laughs> you know, once there's no more uh, potential customer well, to exploit, what well, matters yeah. then? That was after his great act of charity, of course. What, did he give a 10% off discount? To the baby, yeah, he, to he the baby the, Jesus. <laughs> he gave the blanket to the baby Jesus. Oh, okay. Well, as long as there was no government... 
action to require him to give a blanket. Then I think, okay. I think he, he may run into some of the Roman. I think some he may run into some of the Roman authorities in it, and I think there might be some kind of. Yeah, they probably yeah. they have that imposition tax for the lazy people. Yeah, to take care of the lazy. Well, Doctor Future, thank you. Um, we're gonna have to do part two that, yeah, of the eighties into the current time. Well, we, what we're gonna need to talk about too is Gerald Hurd a lot more. Like I'm just kind of barely scratching the surface on the, that. The, the weird kind of like stuff. The more, the more like weird kind of new age and, well, and gnostic yeah. stuff that that informs all this libertarianism. It's all tied yeah, it's all tied. Well, into and I, I want to really put the challenge out to people getting into conspiracy theory in this generation i'm all for investigating all ideologies and of the spectrum there's a lot of weird stuff from all angles but i feel like there's a there's a lot of people ignoring the origins of the right-wing power in america yeah i agree and no matter what you're but even if you consider yourself conservative you still need to understand this history yeah you need to understand where all this comes from, how it's all about power. It's all about the the pursuit of power. I mean, that's 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 all it is. I mean, history mm-hmm. is, is that essentially anyway. But fueled by selfishness, yeah. And get back to the question asked at the dawn of humanity: Am I my brother's keeper? How you answer that will send you in two different directions. And if you're not your brother's keeper then a lot of things like conservatism and libertarianism will look very attractive because they're not burdened by that duty. If you burden yourself with that duty, then all you have is guys like the lowly carpenter and people like that. And, you know, even the Bible says the people who are God's spokesmen that talk, yeah, the greatest salesman, the people who did that, their rewards on this earth, it says, it says they lived wearing animal skins and lived in caves. So that's what you get if you pick that option. Is it that's your reward? But it says the world was not worthy of them. I think I'd rather stick with the animal skins and caves over these these sort of sick, perverted men that I read that are actually miserable and ruin their own lives because they have too much money. You know, I got too much to live for to be a billionaire. Hmm. And uh, I think that's sort of a version. That's just an early start on hell. So when is the book going to be available again? Well. Now, had I been home tonight, I would have been working on the index, which is like a <laughs> oh, in, endless. Sorry, in, guys, you have to wait yeah, a little no, longer. Lay, just, lay the guilt on, just, you, know, you know, slightly. Yeah, listeners aren't worth. Oh, I didn't say that loud, did I? Um, no, seriously, just joking aside. Um, I got one last big task, which is something stupid. Putting an index together, I think I used the word Pharisees 800 times in the book. So I got to find all those and put them in and everything else in there and build this thing so it's a legitimate book. Just like the the end notes and everything, if people are going to do research for this book, everything is well documented in there. You can go right to the source material. So, uh, you know, I guess it's worth it. I have some logistical business stuff to get the website set up. Uh, get the ISBN numbers, uh, copyrights, all that kind of thing. And so I don't know what I'm in for. This first one is the longest one. The rest of them should pop out quick. So I'm going to estimate probably the next 30 to 60 days 
um, and I'm going to try everything to get it to 30 days. I don't know if a lot of you people out there, I guess I can say this. Right now, currently, I think I've talked Von Glitschka, which is a friend of a lot of our circles, to hopefully do the book cover. That's something else that, you know, has to be done. And so, you know, unless he gets wise to me and walks away, hopefully we'll have a nice, good cover for it. There's just a lot of minute details and all this stuff. But I'm working 24-7 on it because I think the information is that important. And, and like, your listeners that bother to listen to this show, if they can get a book like this, get conversant, to, conversant so they can answer their parents and relatives you know, snarky comments, and then give the book to them and say, read this from cover to cover before you form an opinion, and then let's have a chat. I think they're going to have a better chat. I'm hoping some of the people they give it to say, wow, I didn't know all this. And this person isn't some, you know, godless heretic. There's somebody who loves God, but they want to tell the truth by telling me things I didn't know. You know, I had to go hunt down the stuff for myself. I've had a few little helps along the way with some people. I think about Peter, like Good Game, Peter Goodgame, and people like that yeah. who've helped me along the way. You know, even people like Alex Jones and others hit on some good points before they went weird. You know, I mean, there's little things I found with through strange people that led me on my path. So I'm hoping it's useful. But back to I'd say 30 to 60 days. As much as you'll have me on to talk about the parts of it. Yeah. You got me. Okay. And hopefully I'll have Good. my act cool. together. We'll try to get you back here in the and studio. And I can recite too, it yeah. verbatim when I come back. Right now my brain's so rattled I can't think of my own name. So. Yeah. Cool. So look forward to the part two, probably wrapping up some of the history and then going into the 80s and all the way to today. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's wall-to-wall stuff we skipped so, around on. The the title is, is going to be, what's the title again? It's called, uh, the series is called, Two Masters and Two Gospels. This volume one is the teaching of Jesus versus the leaven of the Pharisees in talk radio and cable news. And we didn't talk about this, but I basically show that the stuff you hear out of right-wing mass media is literally verbatim what the Pharisees taught and what Jesus called the leaven of the Pharisees. It says, beware it. Because like leaven, you get a little bit of it in there, and it starts, it's like a a mind... uh, you know a virus it just spreads throughout your head like leaven and he said stay away from it and i try to expose some of that and it makes a lot of sense what they're saying it's mostly it's the almighty dollar he he said the pharisees hated what he said he says because they were lovers of money so i guess they aren't the only religious leaders that in that category all right well we are stopping here Thank you, Dr. Future. Thank you. For being here, as always, to close out the year with us. Do you want to share uh, ways to get in contact with you or, oh, or check out your material, your, your past podcast? I already right. forgot. Thank you. Um, if you want to hear some of the old shows, including stuff I no longer believe, uh, for the time being, it's up there, futurequake.com, 300 shows. Um, there's good stuff and not so good stuff there. Uh, but my email address is there, and I would love if you want to drop me a line to get on the mailing list to let you know about when this book's out. Uh, I'm sure you'll hear about it here. But the, the, the email address is Dr. Future, D-R Future, F-U-T-U-R-E, at futurequake.com. And uh, it's on the website there, too. And if you say, hey, I'd like to hear when the book's out, um, it'll be 
on Amazon, and I'm going through another distributor to go everywhere else, and so I'm doing my best. I'm going to try to release it as a ebook and paperback, and I'm looking into seeing if it's feasible to do an audio book. It's all very expensive. Oh, nice. Cool. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a try. Good luck. You know how hard, how hard it was for you to read the way I write? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine one of these professional readers trying to make hiding her hair out of my three-paragraph long sentences, but we'll, well. see. I mean, some a lot of the more independent producers are doing it by themselves. But yeah, um, I know Jenny Ashford. I know that she's her books are she's written some long true crime stuff books, and she's just done the recording herself. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and also you have the two spies report. Two spies report blog oh, yeah. is still up. Yeah, on WordPress. Two spies report dot wordpress dot com. I haven't posted there in a long time. I started doing it, and then this ended up being a book, and I disappeared. So. All of my critics on that blog are disappointed that they can't reach me on there. So, I've been underground. <laughs> All right. And, and Adam, thank you oh. for prodding me yeah. to do this. Most welcome. As Mike. much thank as I've you hated for you here. for it, um, it forced me <laughs> to do this. Now, what will happen is nobody will read the Holy War Chronicles when they this bile they, they read no. that they'll hate. So I'll blame you later for that. Okay. That works for me. All right, guys. Well, this is it. Uh, technically, the last show of the year. We still have our year in review to do at the beginning of next year. Did you? Were you well, I'm just you saying that? we're we're hoping to really amp it up this yeah. coming year. We're hoping to really uh, get this thing going. Of course, you can go to patreoncom slash normal conspiranormal.com, uh, and follow us on social media at conspiranormal with the I everywhere. Yep, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We are on there. Also, YouTube. Uh, give us a subscription to there. Even if you just listen to the show on iTunes or podcast audio format, please leave us positive reviews on yep, iTunes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel, but you get this to a thousand. Maybe we can get this thing monetized. So we are pretty close. So I want to thank Dr. Future for being here, uh, to help us close out. We'll talk more about, uh, some of our plans for next year in the year in review show, which we're going to record probably, in about a week or two. So, all right, guys. Thanks for being here and listening to Conspiranormal. If you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Or leave a one-time donation at Conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.